You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. JR. And I'm Matt. Oh, yeah. And we don't normally do it like that. Do we not? No, what? normally I go first, don't I? Okay, let's do it again. Okay. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm JR. There we go. <laughs> <clears throat> I should have left the silence there instead. We'll get you. <laughs> the silence be, for the rest be... of the Blue Box crew to fill in yeah, yeah. when they bother yeah. turning up. Yeah. The fact that two of us got in, got it in the wrong order. <laughs> a Are you saying that's embarrassing? Yeah, well, it's a blue box podcast, isn't it? Yeah, well, it wouldn't be right if it wasn't a shambles. Yep. And it wouldn't be right if everybody was here. Yeah, yeah. First it's, time first time in ages. First time we've done it in ages, and yeah. you can be bothered to turn up. I know. You find it easier getting hold of people in New Zealand, Australia, yeah. Canada. <laughs> oh, exactly. <laughs> And you're getting people from Whipton and, and Polslow. That's, <coughs> my glasses have just know, steamed up because I laughed into my tea. Completely impossible. It's a nightmare. <laughs> ah, to be fair, though, it's December, so everybody's busy. Yes. Except and for you. Well, I don't have any family. No, so I plan my day around you and just turn up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. <clears throat> so, tonight, even though it's only the two of us, but because we've got to get these in before Christmas... We are going to be talking about the Russell T. Davis specials. Yes. But not the Russell T. Davis Christmas specials. Okay. Because one person suggested, this being Steve Herr, he asked if our list should have included The Unquiet Dead, since it was a Russell T. Davis Christmas story. Yes, but not shown at Christmas. No, and I pointed out that I wasn't actually asking about the Christmas stories. I was actually asking about the specials, Steve. Okay. Oh, right. So it's from... It's that year of specials. Well, it's not just that year of specials. It's any special that Russell T. Davis did during his five years. So my one small piece of preparation was to to good effect. It wasn't wasted. Okay, okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. This is going to be all the Christmas specials and the year of specials. Great. And next week... I'll get a sleeping bag. <laughs> Why? Is that a comment gonna, on what Ross T. Davis' no, specials it's gonna take, is? it's going to take ages. There are loads of them. Yeah, but there's only two of us, so that's okay, probably a okay, good thing. Yeah, and yeah. and Just say yay or nay for each of them and we'll go home. Well, because I was thinking there was going to be lots of us here, mm. I've cut down the comments that people made <laughs> to just some salient points. Okay. But I think that's a good idea anyway. Yeah, yeah, if it, if it works, you comments. might as well. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, that's what I did last it. time, and it was fine. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason why they call it salient points. That's <laughs> very true. <laughs> and next week, we'll be doing, as long as everything goes according to plan, mm-hmm. and next week, judging by the way this is going, I shall be doing this podcast with a talking parrot on my shoulder. Right. Yeah, we'll be doing the. Ru- that's no, that's no way to talk about Lee. <laughs> Actually, it was Simon I was talking about. Really, <laughs> next week we are going to be doing the Stephen Moffat specials. Okay, which means all the Christmas specials from Stephen Moffat plus the Day of the Doctor, which right. is the only non-Christmas special he did. Cool. But before we get into 
the specials, we've got, and considering we've not got together and done this for about a month, we've got one email. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> and this, <laughs> but this, this was probably from a few weeks ago anyway. Okay. But this is from Rob Irwin. Right. Oh, okay. Of the of Doctor the... Who show. Ah, ah, I record reviews for him. <clears throat> yes, you do. Yeah, yeah. I'm reviewing the ninth Doctor Adventures. In comic form. In comic form, yeah. Oh. They're very good. I don't read comics. I just never have. Not since um, I was about seven. No, well, I never grew. I didn't grow up with them. Um, but I, I read Alan Moore quite a lot recently, because that's not really. That's kind of like the next level up. But these are quite good fun. It's got Unit in it. It's got Harry Sullivan. Brigadier. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a well, good. I mean... It's a nostalgia fest. Hmm. And it works. No, it does. It, it works quite well. It's not kind of overly sort of you know, convoluted. It's quite well done. Yeah, but that's like a... Well, I suppose these are aimed at old fans then, as opposed it's, to I younger think, fans. I think it's pitched half, well, it's pitched at both. Okay. But then Eccleston is... I mean, how long has it been since Eccleston? It's 12 years. Yeah. So from Harry Sullivan, that means doing... That means it's the equivalent of Harry Sullivan's war is to Harry Sullivan as... Eccleston is to <clears throat> Eccleston's time on the show. Uh, True, program. but Harry Sullivan's War was pitched to people who liked season 12, mm. whereas the Eccleston comics pre- presumably mainly pitched at people who joined Doctor Who in 2005. Yeah. I'd have thought. Yeah. So it mm. seems a little bit odd, but if it works, it works. It works. Anyway, Rob Irwin yes. says, I'm absolutely delighted with the Easter eggs at the end of recent episodes. When Eric Sayward said something along the lines of, it's like we did this in the nude at the end of his bit, I almost ran the car off the road laughing. But I was particularly taken with Nick Briggs' story about the programme being called Dr. Bloody Who at his house because of Nick's obsession with the show. You see, around the time of McCoy starting, when I was 12, and starting to go to fan events and becoming quite a ferret for the programme, my dad started calling the show... Dr. Bloody Stupid, in much the same exasperated way as Nick's parents. He says, We often find through books like You and Who and other outlets for chatting with fans that we have shared experiences, and that's one for me. I chuckled when he told the story. And that's Rob Irwin. Like a ferret, did he say? Yes. Okay. That means digging around to find stuff. Okay. Around, or just drop down people's trousers. Well, he did mention Sylvester McCoy. Yeah. Maybe he spent time down Sylvester McCoy's trousers. Rob Irwin? Yeah. That wouldn't remotely surprise me. No, no. I get that impression as well. <laughs> anyway, he's given me a perfect opportunity yes. to direct anybody who's listening who hasn't got their Christmas presents sorted out to visit po.st forward slash watching books and pick up a you and who book. Oh, okay. Oh, are they, um... Oh, I've written for those as well, haven't I? Yes, so oh, we we'll both recommend excellent. those heartily, don't yeah, we? Yeah, 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 absolutely. And also a time... The, the, the second one, particularly, I think. You mean Contact Has Been Made? Yes, that's the one, yes. And you and who else? Was I in that as well? Yes, oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I did something for that. Jesus Christ. <laughs> yes, I did The Children of Green Nine. Yes, you did. Yeah, yeah, and then I watched and reviewed it for the magazine. Mm, yes, it's all coming back. <clears throat> we should also give a shout out for Time Lord for Change, which we're both in, which has just come out from Chinbeard Books. That's the Drabble one, isn't it? Yes. Yes. 270 yes, odd Drabbles. Wow. Yeah. Do you know how many you did? I think, I think I got, th- I think I did three and I got three in. I think I did the Savages, Legopolis, 
and uh, one other. Which was the demons. No, I didn't do the demons this time. Oh my god, Matt. You no, I try, I've been trying to avoid doing the demons. Yeah, right. Like as, much as, as much as possible. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have. <laughs> it's true. I didn't do the demons for any of your books. I did no. the Awakening. Because I wanted to do the demons and, and it, it was already gone. gone. It gone. <laughs> so I wrote exactly what I would have written for the demons, but for the awakening instead. Well, I but, think several yeah. people had to do that. Yeah. But then, yeah. But no, yeah. The, dra- the drabbles were good fun. I enjoyed doing the drabbles. For anybody who doesn't know what a drabble is, it's a story, a short story in exactly 100 words, not a, not a letter more, not it's a It's kind of like the, the short story equivalent of a haiku. Yeah. So it's just the pure essence of of something you've got you, to try and get a narrative mm. into 100 words which ain't as easy as it's and you can get quite lateral with this as well you can be quite poetic and lateral so the savages i don't know i don't know anything i haven't heard the story listened and i don't He's know the never story. even heard the savages i've never even heard the savages so i wrote about missing episodes instead oh god i know you've written that about anything i know well i wrote it about savages well that's fair enough because it was a free spot yeah yeah, yeah. oh well there you go Shall we, uh, oh, let's talk a little bit about Power of the Daleks. Okay. Because we've not been together for ages, and we've not talked about Power of the Daleks since any of us seen it. And it's come out? Yeah, so I've seen all six episodes. Yeah. And you've seen... I've seen two episodes. The first two. The first two. Um... I don't know why I asked the first two. It would have been slightly... No, no, yeah, I saw three and four. uh, Yeah, episode three and six. Um, no, I watched the first two episodes. Um, I didn't feel, I didn't feel compelled to go on. Um, I did know the story, so I've listened to it. I listened to it on tape with um, Tom Bacon narrating. Oh, back God, in the one day. of those, yeah. And it was really difficult to follow. Um, but I seem to remember I liked it, but for some reason having images doesn't actually improve it for me. Oh, I, see, I kind of preferred has, just listening to it. It's the, the opposite and, effect on me. Right. I much prefer it with the animation. Yeah. It yeah. tells a story for me. Mm. Whereas I've listened to it and I've watched a recon and I've read the book. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've read the book, yeah. Mm. yeah. And on all three occasions, I kind of followed the story, but kind of my interest wavered mm. a lot. But watching yeah. the animation, my interest doesn't waver. Yeah. So yeah. for me, it's the one that most keeps me. I really like. It. I mean, I'm not. I'm not particularly. I'm not down on the animation. The idea of animating, and I really. Mm. I think it would be really. I think well, hopefully, it's the future for for some of, the, of these missing stories. So I'm hoping that this is really successful and loads of people buy it. And there's more, yeah. Yeah. But but this particular case... Well, they did it in something of a hurry. Yeah, yeah. And, well, to be honest, even if they hadn't done it in something of a hurry with the money that they had, mm. um, they weren't going to do a significantly better job. Yeah. It was yeah. never going to be... The thing about it is, for anybody who's not seen it, they've done proper 3D animation models for the Daleks. Mm. So the Daleks sort of move and rotate and do all yeah. these things like you'd expect to see mm-hmm. in a like a Pixar or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And because they're Daleks and they're fairly fairly simple design, mm. they can just about get away with that and yeah. it looks pretty damn good. Yeah. For the characters, it's basically drawings with moving mouths and moving eyes mm-hmm. and blinking and things. Yeah. And to me, you see, for me, that's enough. Yes. Because you're not going to get the expressions that you had mm. with Patrick Troughton and all the others. Yeah. So for me, there's no point. Or for, no, not to say there's no point in even trying, but to say that 
if you don't have the money and the time and the resources mm. to do a sort of really good job, I'm not going to miss that really good job yeah. because yeah. you're going to miss the performance of the original either yeah. way. I mean, the animation didn't put me off and it's not the animation that stopped me from going on to episode three. It's the story. <clears throat> um, which I, I didn't find particularly gripping. Well, this is... It's not my favourite story no. of, all, of all time. I can't understand the amount of kudos it gets. No. Basically, he turns up, there's a really obvious plot mm. to get rid of the... I can't even remember what he's called, the general or whatever who's in charge of the place. Yeah. There's a really obvious plot to get rid of him. The bit about the Daleks... And Lesterson being taken in. Mm. Yeah, okay, that's like half an hour's worth of material spread out across six episodes because of the way the rest of the plot goes. Yeah. But to be honest, it's six episodes where really not an awful lot happens. And you and I, you and I kind of agreed with this, with the idea of the question of why it was sort of slavishly trying to recreate the original when no footage exists. So if it's an animated episode like in The the Invasion where it's slotted into existing episodes, then you want the animation to look like the episodes either side of it. But for Power of the Daleks, there's, nothing exists. So they could have... They I wouldn't have, have minded if, it, yeah. if the backdrop didn't look like a studio backdrop or if, or if they sort of made the animation... But bit... to be fair, I think background designs are pretty good. Because what they've done is they have gone with the original designs, mm. but they've not... I mean, you'll see this more as you get through the episodes. When you get to episodes four and five, they've some of the sets are, like, huge. Okay, okay, so and they have uh, done that a little bit. Yeah, and there okay. are shots where they come swooping in from up above and I, all this kind I of think, stuff. I think possibly, possibly where it showed was... Because on screen, you can cut to Patrick Troughton's face and it's performing these kind of acrobatic expressions and other people can be talking and the camera can be focused on Patrick Troughton's face and the animation... You can't do it. You, you can focus, but they still focus on his face as, yeah, as people are talking. And so you're just focused on one yeah. one immobile face, which has to be immobile because it's it's animation. So I'm not criticising you. that saves money yeah. in animating as yeah. well. But actually, I I think they've done a pretty good job. I like the stuff on Vulcan as well. Mm. That, again, is a lot more expansive than it yeah. would have looked on screen, really. Yeah, it gives me hope for for the future. I'd like to see this team, this team doing more. Yeah, that's what. That's it's got what to be I damn I expensive though, considering how many copies these DVDs sell. Yeah, yeah. So whether it'll be popular enough, hopefully these cinema screenings. Which I think were fairly last minute, right? Will have added a significant enough amount of the take-ins, yeah, to have taken it over the line. Yes, but the trouble is, you can't rely on that next time because mm. then it's not going to be going out to the cinema. If they did one of these every six months, yeah, it's not going to be going out to the cinema every six months because no. people would no. soon say, "Okay, I'm not going to go out and spend a tenner going to the cinema yeah. once every six months for something that I'm then going to spend another." 10 or 15 quid buying on DVD. But you'd assume something like Evil of the Daleks would be would be on their list to, I, to kind of match, yeah. the, match the existing episodes. They're talking about Fury from the Deep in all but the if interviews. If they did Evil but... of the Daleks, they'd have to do episode two as well. Do you think they have to animate? They couldn't slot yes. in the, the actual... No, no, they no. They wouldn't no. have the rights to that? Or... No, no, no. They could slot it in if they wanted to. Yeah. But in order to sell it to 
cinema owners mm. and in order to sell it to a BBC America broadcast audience, they're not going to say, right, here's Evil of the Daleks. It'll be animated for 25 minutes and then it'll be filmed for 25 minutes and then it'll be animated for another two hours and five. Okay, so it'd have to be a completed, a complete animated story. Yes. So in that case, probably something like Fury from the Deep, which doesn't have the hook of the Daleks. And well, it has <clears throat> foam, which must be a complete ass to animate. Not necessarily. There are programs which can do these things for right. you. Okay. But talking of Evil of the Daleks, even though it's one more episode, it's not that... Once you've done the character designs, mm. and once you've done the set designs, to do the extra episode isn't as big an issue. Yeah, Although Evil of the Daleks does hop about all over the place yeah, a bit. but I'd rather they didn't... If they're going to spend money, I'd rather they didn't animate an episode that already exists. I yeah, but, but, but just... what I'm saying is, if they're yeah. going to spend the money, then the money goes on a project, yes, whether okay. there's an episode that exists right. or not. Yeah. So it's not a case of... It's not a case of choosing a story that doesn't mm. have any episodes. It's a case of choosing a project and then making of that mm-hmm. what you can. Yeah. Uh, but my issue with doing Evil of the Daleks next is, if you do the two Dalek stories first... Mm. Where do you go? That's the yeah. end of the project. Yeah. Whereas if you do something like the Macro Terror or Fury from the Deep next, mm-hmm. then you've still got Evil of the Daleks in reserve. Yeah. yeah. So if, say they do Power first and it does really, really well, mm. and then they do Fury second and it yeah. does pretty well. Yeah. And they're kind of thinking, okay, not sure. Then maybe they try one more, maybe a mm. four-parter like the Macro Terror. The Highlanders. Well... Actually, yeah. I think the Highlanders is like a great yeah, animation like because it's a bit of a romp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it and it follows stories like Moonfleet. Yeah. So actually, yeah. it's kind of got a built-in audience that's not Doctor Who that might mm-hmm. say, okay, Moonfleet with the Doctor in it, that might be something interesting to see. Yeah. So it still expands the audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, but then if things start to tail off, you can always bring in Evil of the Daleks mm. and you either say, right, so we finished with Evil of the Daleks and we've done four, but that's two more than we would have done if we did an Evil of the Daleks second. Because mm. I think if they do Evil of the Daleks second, that's a dead end. Right. As far as I can see. Mm. Uh, or potentially, if Evil of the Daleks did well enough, maybe that's the launch for the series. But <laughs> I don't know. I think the people who are holding the purse strings would be a little bit worried if they were looking at a third story and there were no Daleks. Yeah. Mm. You could always put a Dalek into the... It's an animation. <laughs> just have a Dalek in the background yeah, of the yeah, Highlanders. Yeah. Just, just a movie across the horizon. Yeah, that would work. Like, I'd watch it. Well, people <laughs> would confuse it with the chase then, I think. Mm. Shall we get into Russell T. Davis? Okay. Okay. The first, <laughs> so to speak. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the first story and the last... Oh, I don't know, actually. Maybe this will or won't come as a surprise. But you can see the paper in front of you, so you know what's coming. Oh, you've ranked. Oh, we've ranked them. Did I vote for these as well? Um, God, I haven't got the list of people who, but I'm assuming you did. I must have done. It was about a month or six weeks ago. Okay, that's probably. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I remember. Yes, I probably did them. The story that came in last. Yeah. Well, it's Planet of the Dead. Mm-hmm. And there was only really one other story that was ever in contention for last spot. And mm. to be honest, that was never in contention. It was always going to be Planet of the Dead. Chris Hodgen, I mean, these are the edited comments now. Chris Hodgen said, like an average mid-series episode. Yeah. Miles Northcott said, so much better than the next Doctor. Okay, well, fine. <laughs> David Kitchen <laughs> said, lots of ideas that might have worked on paper, but totally fail on screen. Mm. Christopher Bryant said, 
Lady Christina marooned in the wrong story. Thank goodness for Lee Evans. And John Hall says, love the flying shark monsters, but I think some of the characterization is a bit off. Right. Planet of the Dead. Inspired, in part, by the highest science, Gareth Roberts' new adventure. That's the Chelonian one. Which I've never read. No, me neither. But I think the basic gist of the plot is, I think it's a carriage on a train, actually. Right. Gets sucked through a wormhole Mm -hmm. and lands on a desert planet. Mm -hmm. And the people who are in the carriage on the train, along with the Doctor and Ace, presumably, because this is early in the new adventures, have to work out what happened and get the thing home. Mm Mm-hmm. And right. then presumably this is the planet where they let whatever. And it also picks up ideas <clears throat> from the sort of proposed Cartmel season. Oh, well, I'm coming to that. Okay. okay. But I mean, I'm going through this. Okay. There's okay. about three or four things here. And okay, I you, get... you do it systematically and I'll pitch in. Well, what I'm saying is the book, yeah. The Higher Science, presumably has got a cast of maybe a dozen characters. Mm-hmm. And because it's a book, those characters will interact and will expand, and mm. some of them will go through tra- trajectories, yeah. and will have some kind of narrative for the characters. And then, like you say, you've got Andrew Cartmel and... You're looking at me. Yeah, well, what were you just about to say? Oh, the the idea for, for the companion after eights. Which being was? A, being a, a jewel thief thief. Uh, and not just a, a, a safe cracker who opens a safe and discovers the doctor in the safe. Isn't that uh, the idea? But not only that, she was well to oh, do. Oh, yes. An aristocratic yeah. female jewel thief. Aristocratic female jewel thief. So a perfect character for Stephen Moffat to, <laughs> to riff on. Except this is Gareth Roberts. Exactly, yeah. But... Oh, except this is Gareth Roberts and Russell T. Davis. Right. And what's happening here is Russell T. Davis has said, right, here's the idea, go away and write the script. And then Gareth Roberts has brought the script back and mm. Russell T. Davis has finessed it. Right. I'm assuming the character of Lady Christina D'Souza is 100% Russell T. Davis. Right. Because that doesn't, okay. that doesn't really to me apart from the fact that similar character turns up in Unicorn and the Wasp yes but then in a story like Unicorn and the Wasp it's going to be there Mm -hmm. but there is nothing about the story of Planet of the Dead Mm. that in any way asks for a character like Lady Christina D'Souza to be in it yeah yeah and then you've got the insect creatures the Tritivores yeah which is I suppose, like, something out of an alien-type movie. Yeah, it's or... a 1950s B-movie. Yeah, like and it's the terror from beyond space, or yeah. it came from outer space, yeah. or something like that. They're a character from a sort of B-movie. Or The Fly, in fact. Yeah. Yeah, the Vincent Price version. Of the but they're, fly, a, they're, a, they're a man in a boiler suit with mm-hmm. a funny head, yes. which is exactly yeah. the kind of thing you'd have in some 50s or mm-hmm. maybe early yeah. 60s black-and-white B-monster movie, yeah. sci-fi thing. And they're there... In that story, purely to give the Doctor, because they have a crashed spaceship, the wherewithal to get the bus back home. Mm -hmm. And then you have, I can't even remember what they're called. Uh, John Hole calls them the Flying Shark Monsters. They do have a name. I can't even remember what it is. The V, doesn't it? Maybe? The V. It starts with a V. Can't remember. (laughs) Let's just call them the flying shark monsters. Okay. Yeah. Manta rays. They're more like manta rays, actually, aren't they? Yes. Yeah. That's quite a nice special effect. Mm -hmm. And actually, the idea that the reason it's called Planet of the Dead is because the sand under their feet isn't 
sand, right. as it were, yeah. but the dust of a lost civilization mm-hmm. that's been devoured by these creatures. Right. Yeah. That so that's the fourth potentially interesting idea mm-hmm. that we've got in Planet of the Dead. Yeah. But it's starting to sound like a Bob Baker, Bob Baker, Dave Martin story. Well, that's where I'm going, basically. Okay. Yeah. But but and and this is where it comes crashing down. You've got these creatures who have rendered this civilization to dust, mm. and yet they're still hanging around on the planet, presumably waiting for a way off. Yeah. Now, whatever way you kind of sort of try and hand wave that away, those creatures aren't still going to be alive if this civilization is actually dust. Because mm. they've not actually crumbled these buildings to dust in the space of a couple of weeks or a couple of days or whatever. Mm. If they've destroyed these buildings, it is still going to take these buildings centuries to turn to dust. Yeah. So why would these creatures... How could they possibly still be alive on this planet? Mm. So but, but the point I'm coming to is you've got all these interesting ideas, yeah. but none of these ideas actually connect with no. any other of these ideas. Yeah. You've got B-movie insect men, mm. then you've got a, a sort of vaguely Horns of Nymon-esque story about these flying manta ray creatures yeah. who are basically locusts of the universe. What's that got to do with B-movie men in boiler suits? Mm. Then you've got a lady jewel thief, yeah. or crown thief, as it turns out. At no point in the story does she do any thieving to yeah. get them off the planet. Right. So, yeah. even in the most basic character sense, what's she doing in that story? Yeah. They put her in that story without giving her a purpose for being there. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this story about this bus that gets sucked through a wormhole onto this other planet. And other than you're then going to use that wormhole to suck the flying manta ray creatures through to Earth so that they can destroy Earth in the same way as they've destroyed this planet, mm. which is basically a deus ex machina. Mm. What's the story with the bus? You've got half a dozen or so people on the bus. You barely introduce us to them. You have the Doctor and Christina go off and meet the insect people, so we never get to spend any time with the rest of the people on the bus. Yeah, And then come the end of the story, is all about the Doctor and Unit. Mm-hmm. And Lee Evans's character. Yeah. So even at, by the end of the story, the people on the bus are basically just there as background. Yes. Red shirts they'd be in a Star Trek, but they don't even get eaten. No. They just basically sit on the bus from the start of the end episode to the end of the episode, yeah. do nothing. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to believe that this is less than a year after midnight. Where yes. Russell T. Davis did something ostensibly similar mm. and really did a great job yes. on the characters yeah. and the character stories. And yeah. here, between him and Gareth Roberts, who, who, for whatever you think of his stories, generally does I mean, decent character work. It strikes me that the problem, and I agree with Chris, Chris Hogden, Hodgen. Hodgen about this, that it feels like a fairly mediocre mid-season episode yeah. that's been given the label special, but None of the, none of the elements actually feel special, and they don't hold together for sure. But that doesn't bother me too much in the Doctor Who story because you can have these elements. But it needed something to raise it yeah. beyond, and I think they were going 
they were clearly going with the fact it was filmed, or they were selling it on the fact it was filmed in Dubai. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't quite enough because no. a desert isn't quite visually arresting enough to make an entire special. I mean, the, the, at some point we'll talk about the end of time, and they filmed some of that in basically a quarry in Cardiff. And for me, that was much more visually interesting. Then, yeah, it does. It's not visually interesting. You need yeah. to do something with it to yeah, make it special. Yeah. And and so, I mean, mis- the issue with the fact that none of these elements fit together is yeah. because this stood alone. Yeah, 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 yeah. If it had been in the middle of a series, you could have just about gotten away with it. But because it stands alone, yeah. it really needs to go here. And also, if it had been in the middle of a series, they would have scaled it back slightly. They would, they would have, have been, been trying to make it special. They would have scaled it back and actually it would have been a more satisfying story I think. Well it would have been 15 minutes shorter so yeah. you wouldn't have minded that you never mm. really got introduced yeah. to the people on the bus for example. Yeah. yeah. But, and it could have been more like, as you said, it could have been more like midnight. Not in terms of plot but in terms of the way they approach it. Of the way it but moves, it's like yeah. imagine midnight expanded to special status. You just lose everything that makes midnight midnight. So some stories are are more suited to not being specials. And I I think this is going to be a common... Theme across this. Or a common way, because I'm... Well, we'll get to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to several of it. Yeah. I I don't especially dislike Planet of the Dead. Mm. I've said this many times. There's not a single episode since the series has come back that I can't sit down and watch and be entertained by. Yeah. But it it really is very unfulfilling. Yeah. It's just unspecial. Mm, that's, that's my right. that's my problem, yeah. and I can remember thinking that at the time we get to what was it Easter, and just thinking, well, that's all we've got yeah, now yeah. for another six yeah. months. I'd rather something dramatic had happened, something that that because also it it occurred during this kind of the death of the tenant doctor as well, so it could have what you could have had as a start of a kind of an arc story. And you yeah. could have stretched that out, but actually they were, there was a nod to it, or a knock to it. <laughs> There's a strange but, woman saying he yeah, will knock yeah. four times. And, and, the, it's like, and that's, that's what not... I thought, the Planet of the Dead. I thought this is going to be the first of Tennant's swan song stories. And yeah, it was just a, a standard story with a bit of Tennant's swan song kind of shoehorned into it. Yeah, to make it feel like something yeah. more than it was. Mm. I don't dislike any of the elements. I think they could have made a really interesting story about mm, six yeah. people on a bus marooned on an alien planet. Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't. They could make four interesting stories out of Planet of the Dead. Yeah, that's what, well. I was just gonna. I was just gonna point out what each of them were. Mm. I I like B movies. Mm-hmm. I love B movies. Some of my favorite movies are B movies. They could have made a really interesting. Oh, they were really. They were fun... ants. They were ants, not bees. Though I just want to point that out. What did I say? You said B movies. They're ants. Oh, okay. They could have made a tremendously excellent episode about mm. about insect people, mm-hmm. but they didn't. No, yeah. They could yeah. have made a great story about a aristocratic lady thief mm-hmm. who had to do some lady thievery mm-hmm. on the doctor's behalf in order to solve a problem. Yeah. And, you know, they could have made a really interesting also story this, about locusts. Did this take place after the season where they, they dropped... An episode set in the British Museum was there not? Was that not what Midnight was replacing? It was going to be a Mark Gatiss British oh, Museum been, yeah. sort of sort of romp. And that was w- going to be a Nazi thing as well, wasn't it? Possibly. I could possibly. be remembering that wrong because I've not. But that would be such a great setting for an aristocratic 
jewel thief. Yeah. So, yeah. None of those things worked. No. Planet of the Dead, it's not really a surprise. It's ended bottom. The story that came in six, because there are seven of these. Mm-hmm. Five Christmas specials and two others. Okay. So the story that came in six out of the seven was The End of Time. Mm. Now, in some ways, that's a huge surprise. Yeah. Because The End of Time is David Tennant's two-part mm. very last story yeah. that's straddling Christmas and New Year. Mm-hmm. Now, if you say to somebody, David Tennant, the most popular Doctor of the modern series, if not one of the most popular Doctors of the series ever, mm. during potentially the series' most popular phase ever, mm-hmm. certainly never got near number one in the TV charts back in the original run, yep. and yet it hit that spot twice with mm-hmm. David Tennant, Yeah, I think. You would think two parts spread across Christmas, his very last story, that would be something epic and spectacular and fulfilling. Yeah. And yet, well, here are the comments. Okay. Chris Hodgen again. Very mixed, epic, cheesy, and moving. Miles Northcott says, such an enjoyable romp that it's hard not to love it. And it has that performance by Bernard Cribbins. Steve Herr says, still crying every time the doctor says who he borrowed the pound from to get the lottery ticket. Dylan Reese. And this is these are quite good. Point. These are quite good comments. These well, are quite positive. Cool. Sorry, positive comments. I mean, well, not, yeah. not good. I disagree with most of them, but you know. Dylan Reese says the cliffhanger to part one is one of the most exciting things I've ever seen. I don't know. I think that's very salient. Uh, no, I'm I'm confused because this comes bottom uh, second from the bottom, and so far all well, the I've comments have been positive. Yeah, but I've pulled, pulled out com- the interesting okay, bits. Okay, right. So. <laughs> so Dylan Reese said the cliffhanger was great for but, instance but the rest of it is, is a load of rubbish <laughs> and Steve Hurst said I still cry every time the doctor says who he borrowed the pound from but the rest of it was a load of rubbish <laughs> cried with relief because the episode was nearly finished <laughs> Christopher Bryant says I'd like to place episode 2 higher and episode 1 at the bottom oh. and both parts of course have Wilf mm-hmm. Tim Gambrell who's been on our podcast, of course, says Sims Master annoyed the hell out of me in Series 3, but here he works really well. We need more animated skulls in Doctor Who. Yes, the ending goes on too long, as we have the walk down and bow for everyone at the end of the play, and the perfect moment for Matt Smith to appear would have been when the Doctor stands up in the irradiated cubicle. But the series follows slightly different rules these days, and things can be manipulated. And John Hole says, I mainly enjoy it for Bernard Cribbins. Making him cry is a bit of a low blow, though. RTD was always trying to make <laughs> us cry. Mm. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a Cribbins fan. Oh, that's <laughs> Am I the enough. only person? I think. Probably. He's nice. He's very nice. I like Cribbins. He was uh, in that last series and the specials. He was... One of the few elements that still felt like a real human being mm. to me. Yeah. Because Catherine Tate, her character, although people love her and she was tremendous fun, it always felt like a caricature. Yeah. With a bit of reality mixed in. Mm. And Bernard Cribbins was part of what made that reality. Actually, I'd probably take it back because that final, the uh, the, the two chamber scene with, with Cribbins. 
I yeah, I did buy into that one. Mm. But, well, yeah, I'm gonna. The first okay. thing I'm gonna bring up is Dylan Reese's point about the cliffhanger. Right. First episode of End of Time. Yeah. You've got everyone goes on about these potions to bring the master back. Mm. Nobody, nobody said a damn thing about the potions that bring back. Paul McGann in The Night of the Doctor. When you say everybody talks about it, you mean certain Canadians. No, other people did in the comments, but I just edited it out. But then those people who mentioned it there said, oh, and of course the Canadians talk about this all the time. Yeah, the Canadians really dislike this. this But I don't have an issue with the potions. No, no, no. Because potions is what brings back... Potions, whatever you've got in the potions, Mm. is made out of chemicals. Yeah. And if you need to do something scientific yeah. that involves some kind of chemical stroke biological reaction, yeah. you're going to need chemicals. Mm-hmm. So a potion is just simply a way of introducing the right chemicals yes. into the inert substance in yeah. order to create the reaction that yeah. does the thing you and want in to this happen. Case, in this case, the story started by it, which is great. I mean, in something like, is it New Earth? That's Where it basically ends with it. potions are used to end the story. Yeah. He just jams as many potions as he can into a. Actually, I didn't dislike that. That was I don't the few elements. I don't dislike. I don't dislike anything. I mean, I'm not. A, I'm not a big. Um, I'm not adverse to magic in Doctor Who. Even but the end of New Earth was about the only sensible thing in that story. Well, yeah, half sensible, I should say. Attractive cat monster. Well, that's not beyond Christian. Mm. Point being. Yes that I was coming to is like you get a first episode that's very much all about bringing the master back Mm -hmm. and then it's a master because he's been brought back in a fairly inadequate way the master that you get is an inadequate replication of the master yeah so he goes off and he does all these mad things Mm -hmm. and he's a mad character Mm -hmm. that's an interesting thing to do in and of itself Mm. But it's where Ross T. Davis is taking it, and this is and this is all in the writer's tale, I suppose, but this is a perfect example of where Russell T. Davis was at this point. He builds up to this cliffhanger, and I agree with Dylan Reese, the cliffhanger where everybody on the planet Earth turns into the master is a great cliffhanger. Yeah. What an astonishing image to leave the audience in suspense for a week, knowing that David Tennant's gonna regenerate the week after on but that everybody, six and a half billion people on the planet, mm-hmm. has been turned into the master. Yeah. But, and I said this recently somewhere else, I can't remember if it was on Blue Box Podcast or somewhere else, so I'll repeat it, I'll bring it up again, just in case it was somewhere else. But the trouble with that idea is, where can you take it once you've done that? Mm. Because if you turn everybody on the planet into the master, there's nobody left to get any drama out of. Yeah. So you're essentially down to the Doctor... And six and a half billion masters. Yeah, which is why they left Donna as Donna. Yes. To, and Cribbins as Cribbins. But then so they, they kind of insulated against some. Yeah. But yeah. but he didn't really do anything with that. No. There was a little bit of running around with Donna, mm. which didn't really come to anything. No. And then the Doctor and Bernard Cribbins do a little bit of espionage and get themselves off the planet. Yeah. Which could have been fun in a uh, sort of a. Uh, there could have been a. The second episode could have been a sort of Vichy esque episode mm. where you've got Cribbins and the Doctor running around in basically occupied territory. Right. Trying yeah. to solve things in occupied territory. Mm-hmm. And you kind of had a little hint of that 
but nothing really more I think than the, a hint. the danger of that is it would be a repeat of Sound of Drums, which is where they well, did that. Well, it would have so been. You, it was kind of... But I didn't mind that. I liked that. Oh, yeah, That's yeah, what I liked good, about Sound good, of Drums. It's a good plot type. Mm. Mm. And, uh, and since the Master's back, yeah. and this is what he's done, that's really the only plot he could have had. Yeah. But instead, the Time Lords turn up, and with one wave of a magic glove, the Masters all turn back into people. Yeah. That's the biggest Deus Ex Machina. That... But I, so, so my view of this story is, I really like, I really like this story. And the Time Lords, I was very excited, not by the Time Lords, not, not for any, I don't, don't think it was because I'm a fan and I was thinking of Ark of Infinity when they came back. <laughs> I was thinking this, this felt like a special. This felt like something was happening in a special. Which, which, yeah, I thought, I thought it was gutsy to, to bring that back. I don't think I, I recognized at the time that they brought the, the, the Time Lords back, didn't do anything with them and then sent them off again. Yeah. Which was problematic. But I think the visual and the conceptual thrill of seeing the Time Lords coming back and Timothy Dalton's performance mm. compensated for that. Well, my ultimate, bit. my ultimate point on the end of time is, a lot of it's really crappy, and it doesn't add up to a lick of sense. But it's Russell T. Davis, and it's his last time behind the keyboard, mm. and there's not a second of it that isn't entertaining. So, yeah, it's played. It's played with conviction, which is good. All the, so the individual scenes feel very dramatic, and they feel well performed. So the cafe scene, watching Tennant getting beaten up, Tennant with the gun, Tennant falling. All of these things are really the well scene played. With they... the master and Tennant and Dalton at the end, yeah, yeah. is a great yeah. scene. Oh yes, I rewatched. I remember rewatching that. There's, there's something about John Sims' delivery of that mm. scene that he manages to choose an unusual way of delivering every line. And so I think every part of that story is well made and performed with conviction. It may not hold together very well. <laughs> no, it doesn't. But also my exception to that is I'm not a fan of the the long, slow goodbye. I like bits of it, but it felt like less... Oh, you mean the last 10 minutes? Yeah, it felt less of a goodbye to David Tennant's doctor and the, the character and more Russell T. Davis saying goodbye yeah, to, to is... his previous characters, which is kind of fair enough, but also self-indulgent when it comes to a story. Well, he'd already done the goodbye to David Tennant at the end of Journey's End. Yeah. Yeah. Which, yeah. Well, uh, Which I thought was self-indulgent as well. But this was this was one step beyond because I think this was Russell T. Davis saying Yeah, goodbye. yeah, it was. But he was. And, and why not? Well, well, why not? But also, if you're watching it as a, as a viewer, you don't want to think about the writer. You want to think about the characters. Yeah, and so I was watching it thinking, not... thinking Russell T. Davis was directly communicating well, with you. Well, you are. Yeah. 99% of the people watching the episode aren't. Mm. 99% of the people watching the episode are saying goodbye to David Tennant. Yeah. Along with those other characters. Yeah. Which is why for me it didn't work. And I think it was bits done... Of, but again, bits of it worked. I love the Donna bit. I loved the, uh, the... I agree about the lottery ticket bit. I thought that was a nice touch. But that concluded... So Donna was quite a recent thing. The other I bit mean, that the, really the Martha bits. No, that was crap. And the the Sarah Jane bits. That oh, was the un- Sarah Jane bit was okay. There was a John Barrowman bit as well, which that didn't was really need to be there. I mean, the, the... I can see the rose uh, the rose bits. And no, the I thought the rose bit was great. Yeah, 
I see. I could see why they were there because it's bookending the David. I predicted Tennant. the Rose bit about a year before the episode went out. Right. Okay. <laughs> but that's bookending the David Tennant Doctor. That's that's about the David. That's about the tenth Doctor. That's not about Russell T Davis. The whole. It's not even bookending the David Tennant Doctor. It's bookending the whole last five years because that mm. bookends Christopher well, yes. Eccleston yeah. as well. Of course. Yeah. But it can be it can be perceived as bookending that. So my point is. My point is the other characters make it feel like a Russell T. Davis thing, having Rose in the snow because that's that's what happened. That's where the issue that's is the Christmas invasion. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got Donna at the end as well. But the issue at is a, at a wedding. Yeah. But so the issue is you couldn't have had the Donna bit and the Rose bit without mm. having the other bits as well. Mm. They could have tried. <laughs> it wouldn't have worked. It would mm. have been too much of a. It would have been. Too disjoined from the rest of the episode if it hadn't been the whole piece. I don't know. I don't know because Rose has still got a special. Rose has still got a special place in the series beyond Donna, Sarah Jane, Captain Jack. Yes, but what I mean is, sorry, Martha. Yeah, Jack. no, and that's Donna true. has a special place in this story. Yeah, so just having those two would have worked for me. No, but what wouldn't have happened is if you'd have gone straight to those two from the moment he finds out he's regenerating, mm. you wouldn't have had that build-up to those two that right. you had that made those two bits special at the end of that sequence. Yeah. You would have just dived straight from one moment of sort of harrowing drama mm. into another moment of sort of high drama. So, you needed the build-up. So what I'm not suggesting is they cut out they cut out Captain Jack, Martha and Sarah Jane and not replace them with something that builds that drama up. Well, yeah, you could have. But it's but that, then it's what bringing was, them back. But what was the alternative? I don't know. I'm not Russell T. Davis, but I'm you sure see, he's, a, he's a master writer, so I'm sure he could have come up with something that wasn't quite as self-indulgent. I don't think he could have, because it needed to be a series of goodbyes, so that when you get to Donna and then Rose, you know that those are goodbyes. Mm. So I don't think there's anything else he could have done. Mm. Otherwise, it would just be like going from the pre-penultimate chorus of a song to the penultimate chorus of a song to the last chorus of a song without or any of the a, bits in between. Or a series of vignettes showing the, the Tenth Doctor journeying to different places. It was I a mean, series they, of vignettes had, showing the yeah, Tenth Doctor but, journeying but to different not, places. Not necessarily kind of... It's, it stopped it being about the Tenth Doctor and it started being about about finding out what happened to Martha and Mickey and finding out what... Yeah, just but, felt it. I don't know. Well, it was um, still about. It was like a series of talking heads. Yeah. Oh, and but they had they had um, Jessica Hines as well in it. They slotted her in signing yeah. a book. God knows it's, why it's, that it's, was there. Well, it's good. It's, well, yeah. So I loved the story. I just thought I remember watching that last ten minutes and just thinking, "Die, David Tennant! <laughs> For God's sake, die!" No, I like that last bit. Okay, not all the elements of it yeah. but i think okay. it works and i don't i don't think it could have worked another way mm. let's do the story that came in above the end of time okay and actually this was fairly close with the one above it mm -hmm. until the last few votes and these two were swapping places quite a bit but the story that came in fifth out of the seven stories since we've just been talking about Catherine tate a lot is the runaway bride mm -hmm. which when it came out, everybody hated it, as far as I remember. Yes. That was one of those ones where it came out and just, insofar as I recall, mm. the entire reaction to it was flat. Presumably from 
from fans. Yeah, yeah. Reaction, yeah. And then... But I think the reaction to it overall was a bit flatter than it had been for anything up to that point. There's maybe a reason for that, which sort of gets alluded to in the comments, so I'll come back yeah. to that. Okay. But then, a few months down the road, a few people started saying, well, actually, I don't think it was quite as bad as I thought it was. Yeah. But it, then, obviously, when Catherine Tate becomes a regular mm. is when it gets a complete reappraisal. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, I think it might easily have stood a chance of being very bottom of this list, okay. rather than edging towards maybe getting in the top half. But, but the comments. Chris Hodgins says, Good tenant Tate banter, poor story. Miles Northcott says, amongst other things, again, these are amongst lots of other comments. Yep. Miles Northcott says, The TARDIS travels in the time vortex and is not a helicopter, for heaven's sake. <laughs> He's talking about the chase sequence where the TARDIS is <laughs> chasing down the road like a... Everything Miles says, I disagree with. <laughs> David Kitchen says, Starts the trend of forcing Christmas into a Christmas special, even when it's not the best thing for the story. Yeah. I gotta disagree with him. Okay, I'm gonna possibly agree with him. Well, I think that trend starts in the Christmas invasion. Oh, okay. A story yeah. which has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with Christmas, yeah. but has yeah, a Christmas yeah. tree yeah. in it. Okay, I agree with that. Dylan, but I, but maybe, I, I think David Kitchen actually thinks, no, we'll get to it when yeah, we get to the okay. Christmas invasion, but I completely disagree with his comment about the Christmas invasion, but, but potentially you could say, Okay, the Christmas invasion has to be set at Christmas because it's a Christmas special. Yeah. But we'll kind of come to that. Yeah. So it's the following year where it starts to get shoehorned in mm -hmm. because they decide to keep doing stories that yeah. aren't Christmas stories but setting yeah. them at Christmas. Dylan Reese says, wasn't a fan of Donna and hoped I'd never see her again. How wrong was I? Oh. Christopher Bryant says the unnecessary repeated Santas and a hugely over-the-top guest villain performance drag it down. This was probably, though, exactly what the series and the Doctor needed after Doomsday. Oh, OK. Yeah. And that was the other point I was going to bring up, but I'll come back to that just after one more comment. John Hull says, shame that it looks like it was filmed in summer, but Catherine Tate is amazing, as we all know. Don't understand the segues, though. <laughs> um... Okay, I'm going to dive in with Christopher Bryant's point, and this is why I think... Because, see, The Runaway Bride, to me, I think it's a fairly entertaining, quite rapidly moving, so it doesn't get dull, apart from from 20 minutes from the end, right. which I think is hugely problematic, and I'll come back to that. But I think for the first 40 minutes, it's very entertaining, it moves along, uh, quite a swift rate of knots and I think the Tennant and Tate stuff is quite nicely judged mm -hmm. people's th there were a lot of complaints about the fact that she's very shouty all the way through this and she doesn't really get a character till she comes back yes. I say look at the scene on the top of the skyscraper which is like 10 minutes into the episode mm -hmm. and that belies the truth in that statement Yeah. Um, but yeah after you got to the end of Series 2. And Series 2 was a bit here and there, but it did build to one hell of an almighty climax. Mm -hmm. And then you had the end of Doomsday, and there was not a dry eye in the house for that. Yeah, That was probably about as emotionally involving as Doctor Who has ever been 
at any point in its history. Yeah. The end of Doomsday. Apart from when Adric died. <clears throat> and as Christopher says, this was what the series and the Doctor needed after Doomsday. Mm-hmm. They needed something light and fast and a bit silly yeah. to make you think, okay, this is what Doctor Who is. It does the emotional stuff, yeah. but this is what it is. Yeah. And that's what The Runaway Bride did. But that's why, more than Catherine Tate, I think it got such a bad reaction mm. because I think Series 2 and Series 1, to be fair, both built to such emotional climaxes that this felt like an anticlimax afterwards. Yeah. Because where has the Christmas invasion carried on from? Mm. Well, bad Wolf. Yes, yeah. This doesn't carry on from. It's sort of a new start. So, so yeah. I mean, both Christmas invasion and this one are and produced as independent stories, which obviously at the time they were doing because they weren't sure how many people were going to be watching the series, but certainly with Christmas Invasion. But you're right that here they now know that the series is a success. So they can they can sort of stretch the story into the Christmas story, which is what I kind of wanted at the time. Well, no, Christmas Invasion stretches the story because it's what happens after the regeneration. So it carries on straight after Parting of the Ways. It does, but it's still a, it's a, it's a fresh start, though. Well, so it it's, is. It's a new Doctor's but, fresh start. It's not really the story carried on. No, but my point is, well, the story does carry on because the story that's carrying on is what does Rose make of what's just happened to the Doctor and what do Mickey and Jackie make of this new guy who's just turned up. It's a continuation of the story. It's a fresh start for the Doctor, yes. but for the story of what's happening, it's not. It's a middle chapter of the Christmas Invasion. Yeah. Whereas The Runaway Bride is just... Doctor turns up, there's this crazy woman who's in a wedding dress in the TARDIS, something Matt's going down with a giant spider, it's got nothing to do with anything. Well, it's, and, well it hasn't in a way because it's also got a lot of the Tenth Doctor getting over Rose. So it that's, has, yeah. And dealing with being on his own. So the thing I, I suspect you find problematic, which is the the big epic scene with the Ragnos <clears throat> babies and and tenants threatening to, to massacre them. No, I and, don't find that problematic. Okay. But that's the th- that's the story <clears throat> that's being carried on from the series. That's that's Tennant realising that he needs somebody mm. and Donna reminding him that he needs somebody. True. So there is that element. But that's fairly And that well, was my that was my favourite bit about the the story. The that's, I was gonna say I was gonna use the word cosmetic. It's not cosmetic, but it looks cosmetic to a casual Christmas viewer. Yeah, the casual Christmas viewer doesn't need that information. No, but there is fine because the casual Christmas viewer won't pay attention to that bit. No, that yeah, so that's got, exactly so, what I'm saying. So it works on the two levels, which yeah. is what a Christmas story should do. And that, yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, yeah. Whereas with the Christmas invasion, I don't think you can watch the Christmas invasion. The Christmas Invasion, you can watch it without having seen Series 1. Yeah. But you can't watch The Christmas Invasion without being aware that Series 1 has happened. Yeah, possibly. But, but, my main point is, it's a, for the first time between the episode Rose and the episode Doomsday, Mm. The Runaway Bride doesn't have any continuing elements. No. No. no continuing characters. So you want you wanted either it to be a big conclusion to something, which it couldn't be because Doomsday's the conclusion, that, yeah. or you want it to be a big start 
for something. And of course the start comes the next episode with Martha. And for me that start falls a bit flat. I've never liked Smith and Jones particularly as a Well I like it as but a it's first, light. Yeah. I always but you know, I think start big, end big, and have a big thing in the middle. That that seems to work for me. Uh, well this is the issue with the runaway bride. It's like it should be it's neither one thing, it's not one thing, and yeah. it's not the other thing. Yeah. So it's stuck in between these two things. Yeah. And it just kind of... Tell you, the real issue with The Runaway Bride is, other than that Catherine Tate comes back, mm. but at the time it went out, at the time it went out, The Runaway Bride was the first episode of Doctor Who that you could happily have lost completely. Yeah. And nobody would have noticed it hadn't happened. Yeah. I mean, it relied on the casting of the big name casting of Catherine Tate or the incongruous casting of Catherine Tate. Yeah, because she wasn't to... exactly a big name at the time. Big-ish. No, no I, th- I think, yeah, maybe not big name, but unexpected, yeah. I think. And that certainly at the end of, of Doomsday, that was, that was thing, quite yeah. a sort of a big, it was a big moment because yeah. you weren't expecting to see Catherine Tate. Mm. But it is a story that relies <clears throat> on that and nothing else for exactly. to make it. But I think at that time maybe they were maybe they were expecting people to be half drunk watching it, and maybe they were reluctant to. Well, they were obviously reluctant to start the series there. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And they definitely, I think it was a good thing not to finish, not to have a sort of a double climax because well, Doomsday was so was, strong. Yeah, there was, was six so months strong. between them yeah, anyway, yeah. so they couldn't have. But mm. it just. Well, I'm not saying it's, it falls flat for me, but I'm just saying I think that's one of the reasons why it kind of fell a yeah. bit flat on its broadcast is because because for the last two years, people have been following the story of Rose. Yeah. And this is the very first time you're not following the story of Rose anymore. Mm-hmm. And so this is before... This is before, it sounds odd to say, this is before the Doctor Who audience has found the programme Doctor Who mm-hmm. rather than the programme The Doctor and Rose. Yeah. So yeah. this is the... This or, is, or it might be playing on the newfound David Tennant audience. Oh, it is. Which... which oh, so, so actually it's the, first, it's the first episode that David Tennant gets to sort of stand out of the shadow of Billy Piper. But the point... But the, the issue there is the reason why the Tennant fans came to Doctor Who was because of Tennant's relationship yeah, with yeah. Billy Piper. Yeah. So you ca- you're not even playing to them. Mm. You're giving them plenty of tenant, yeah. But you're not giving them tenant the romantic hero, which yeah. is what we'd had up until the previous episode. Mm-hmm. It kind of see for me, it kind of works. I like it, yeah. But in all other respects, it's yeah. not doing any of the things that people wanted it to do. Yeah. I mean, like all of these, like most of these specials, I like the individual moments. Mm. Um, I agree with. I think. Uh, Christopher Bryant that I don't like I don't actually like the Christmassy elements of these Christmas specials I think mm. they should just I always thought that I knew it was Christmas I was sat in a room with a Christmas tree next to me and I'd just eaten turkey so I was aware that it was Christmas I'm quite happy watching something that the really good drama that well, I... doesn't necessarily is filled with Santas and for this I mean, I was happier with the giant spider than I was with the robot Santas coming back. I did. I quite like the Christmas bauble thing. But that was a bit of a nothing thing. Yeah. I, for me, the thing about Christmas is you either tell a Christmas story, mm. and I think Stephen Moffat does almost every time tell a Christmas story. Yeah. So I think his Christmas specials justify the mm. inclusion of Christmas 
by and large. But I don't think Russell T. Davis ever justified the Christmas elements. No, Russell T. Davis was superficially Christmas. So yeah. he had he had the visuals of Christmas. What Stephen Moffat does is he takes the stories of Christmas, like a Christmas Carol or a ghost story, or so he he takes these or the line of which in the wardrobe, which is sort of. But he did, but also Cold. the fundamental <laughs> theme of Christmas, as I've talked about before, is the the idea of a journey, mm. and, and usually it's like you know driving home for Christmas. Yeah, it's just, it's because of the three wise men. The three wise oh. men undertake a journey, which is a journey of personal redemption. Yes, and it's in discovering and protecting. And you see, I'd go far, further than that, and say what Christmas is really about is bringing. Is is safety against the cold outside? So it's more a pagan thing. Yeah. So we yeah. bring things like we bring things into the house from the outside that convinces us that it's still summer. Like we have a tree in the house and we have lights. In yeah, the house and yeah, candles. yeah, exactly. And so that's why ghost stories are popular at Christmas because it's something from the well, outside that's for some, us, some danger from the outside. But I mean, if you go back to the very start, yeah. the nativity, mm. you've got the journey of Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem, yeah. and then the journey of the wise yeah. men, and so on. Yeah. It's all about these journeys, yeah, coming together mm. around a, a person. Yes, yeah. It doesn't need to be a person in your story about Christmas, but in the original Christmas story, it's a person who's going to provide you with a personal redemption, yeah. which yeah. is what Jesus is there for. I always think Christmas predates Christ, personally. Well, but yeah, personally. but do you know what I mean? It's like, if you're going to tell a story about yeah. like a Christmas carol... Yeah, yeah, that, so, so, well, we'll talk about this next so, week, yeah, but yeah. it's about yeah. Sardic's personal redemption, I, I, isn't it? I accept that the Jesus Christ story has something to do with Christmas. Yeah, now. just a little bit. And that, and that is an element. But personally, I'd rather see a ghost story at Christmas. That's that's my um, that's no. my ideal Christmas. But the point we're making yeah, yeah, here is yeah, yeah, none yeah. of these things turn no, no. up in any of no, Russell T. Davis's Christmas are about sort they're of just com- movies commercialism with a few trees in. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think yeah, we'll talk about that. Well, the Runaway Bride later. is kind of bringing up baby type of thing. Yes. I mean, there's um, an there's an urban there's an urban commercialism about Russell T Davis's stories mm. that says that Christmas is about being in a city and going shopping, yeah. and and that happens in in both both of these stories. I mean, quite why Catherine Tate's getting married on Christmas Day it's just sort of belies the fact that he's slotted in this. But so for Russell T Davis. It's definitely not about any of these sort of deeper meaning. I'm not getting religious here, but these deeper symbolic meanings of Christmas. There's a whole rich sort of seam of stories and images and themes that can be mined. And Russell T. Davis gives us baubles, tinsel and spinning Christmas trees and robot Santas yeah. firing flames out of trombones, which, which is fun. But, but I think that but but yeah. but makes me feel less Christmassy at Christmas. But that works for me right. in a superficial sense. Yeah. By which I mean, uh, in a Russell T. Davis Christmas special, I want to be entertained. Yeah. And if there are going to be superficial Christmas elements in there, yeah. I'm happy to say, okay, it's on Christmas Day. Why wouldn't yeah. there be superficial Christmas elements? Yeah. My problem is I'd rather watch the Russell T. Davis specials maybe in July where I'd find them more enjoyable. And then I'd watch the M.R. James ghost stories for Christmas. 
on Christmas Day because well, I, they make me feel, they make me Day. feel more seasonal. <laughs> well, yeah, but well, I think the they idea is that you can watch them both on Christmas Day. Yeah. But one of the things that people like to do is watch movies like The Towering Inferno and things at Christmas. Mm, this yeah, is why they did in the seventies and the eighties when Russell T Davis was growing they still up. Still do it now. I mean. Yeah. Well, I'm not. I don't. I've just. That's they, one example. They watch Love Actually now. And, yes. Uh, and Ghostbusters. And, yes. Well, not in Ghost, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. The, the every year, and it still mm. happens. BBC and ITV will buy a bunch of big movies, yeah. and they'll put yeah. them on over Christmas. And yeah. this is Russell T Davis. He's saying this is the big Doctor Who movie for Christmas. Mm. And yeah. The Runaway Bride is a screwball comedy, and yeah. we'll come to some of the others. And yes. the others are big movies for Christmas. Mm. Christmas Invasion is Independence Day. Yeah. And we'll come to that. Okay, then let's talk about the story that came in fourth. The exact halfway point. Okay. This is the most mediocre story. (laughs) This is... As voted. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this is my favourite. Okay. Which is going to surprise a lot of people, probably. You're going out on a limb. Yeah. It's Voyage of the Damned. Yeah. Um... Chris Hodgen says, well-made disaster movie. Steve Herr says, an amazing Christmas Day spectacle. Dylan Reese says, this is pants, really pants, <laughs> but I love it. It okay. reminds me of a big budget episode from the Graham Williams era. And Tim Gambrell says, spectacle has become more important than content. <laughs> well, here's a question then, Matt. Is that true? I'm picturing Tim Gamble saying, spectacle has become <laughs> more important than content. Um, Is that true? Is Voyage of the Damned all spectacle and no so content? In, in this case, because what we were talking about before was Russell T. Davis's focus on urban commercialization and baubles and tinsel. In a way, this is a, this is a, a kind of a redress of that. So he's gone for a, a story. At least he's gone for a story. Yeah. Which is good. So I think Tim Gamble, before you even go any further, is slightly wrong in that it's yes, not, we there's can, no content. We here. can discount Tim completely. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. his comment. <laughs> it's fine. But there is, I think this is, see, I think this is the one that has the most story. Yeah. Really, of and, all these Christmas specials. I mean, I can see what Tim, so I can see what, so to go back to Tim's comment, I can see what he's saying. Because it's aping a genre that is about, about spectacle, spectacle yeah. rather than content. So the the disaster movie has a very, very basic content. But the content of the disaster movie actually isn't the plot, but the characters. Yes, but the characters do tend to be all ciphers. So you tend to get the same characters in the Tiring Inferno as the Poseidon. Adventure. But what you get in those movies mm. is that although those characters are basically archetypes yeah. you cast great actors to yes. play them yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. those great actors imbue those archetypes with something that makes them enough yeah. more than an yeah. archetype that you want to follow those characters story and you do care who lives and who so dies they are effectively spectacular star vehicles yes and that is what voyage of the damned is yeah but i would say the great thing about voyage of the damned is, uh, aside from the plot, which I think works, essentially. Yeah. I mean, it's a tried and tested formula. Mm-hmm. It couldn't yeah. fail but to work, really. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, I think he's cast well enough all those parts mm-hmm. that it works. Even yeah. though that, even though it's not a star vehicle for anybody, but 
Kylie Minogue. Mm-hmm. I think all the other characters that he casts in those parts that are walking through the ship in the same way as you had in the Poseidon Adventure, I think they're all cast with strong enough actors who bring enough character to those archetypes that basically it works. Yes. And I do care and I do follow each of their plots. Yeah. And when they die, I care that they've died. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think there's a, I don't think you can really argue with that. And so if you're arguing, I think the argument with Voyage of the Damned is it's not a Doctor Who story. Other than the fact that it's a spaceship rather than a sea ship. My argument, my, my, the thing I, I find disconcerting about it is it doesn't feel like a Christmas story to me. But that's because I didn't grow up watching disaster movies at Christmas. So clearly Russell T. Davis had this had this other experience, whether it's a generational one. Well, not just of him, growing up, me too. Yeah, yeah. Watching The Towering Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure at Christmas. I didn't, because I don't know whether they just they were showing Back to the Future instead of... So, so for me, seeing a disaster movie at Christmas doesn't make me feel Christmassy again. It's well, yeah, but okay. I can appreciate Forget it's a better, it's a thing. far better story, cons- a far more consistent story than than uh, the Runaway Bride, I think. Um, and it's far more enjoyable. What was the other one we looked at? Are those the only two Christmas ones we've looked at? Um, then yeah, time, yeah. Just- Set Christmas, the first episode. Yeah, it's a more right? consistent story than the end of time. When you talk about, you can compare it to the ones we're about to talk about if you like. I think of, it's more of consistent. The, of the Christmassy, story. of the Christmassy stories, it's a better story. Of the 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 different ones, the next Doctor and the Christmas Invasion, I think it's a it's it's my favourite story, but it still doesn't make me feel particularly Christmassy. Well, yeah, but I'm saying put that aside for now. Yeah, because because. Let's face it, what we've just said is Russell T. Davis doesn't tell Christmas stories. He just puts a story on at Christmas. Yeah. So let's forget about the Christmas thing. Okay. And let's just concentrate on the stories. Yeah. And in those terms, I think The Voyage of the Damned is the best one here. Okay. Um, Kylie Minogue. We can't talk about Voyage of the Damned without bringing up Kylie Minogue. Yes. I think she does really well. I think yeah. she underplays it and... Some people had an issue with her and said, well, she doesn't really bring anything to it. And that was one of the things, actually, I didn't keep in the comments and probably should have. But I think she does bring something to it. I think she underplays it nicely that she offsets something like Catherine Tate the year before. Yes. And I think her character really works in it. Yeah, yeah. And there's also a slight feeling that you kind of want Kylie Minogue as a regular character. Almost, almost for for the prestige of the <laughs> prestige of the series. Yeah. So that's an there's an added punch when she dies at the end, because you know that that's a fantasy. Having Kylie Minogue coming mm. back to do a whole season, that's a fantasy. So that there's a there's a kind of a a kind of a, a metatextual punch behind her death. I think, which we always knew yeah. was coming. But she's an actress, so I mean, and she acts she acts well. Yeah. I mean, she's a good solid. Well, she brought up in Neighbours and say what you like about things like soap operas, but mm. soap operas can not cast people who can't act because no. the rigours of a soap opera is such that they'd very soon be found out and they'd yeah. be gone. Yeah. And Kylie Minogue was very successful in a soap opera mm-hmm. and she was there for years. Of course yeah. she could do the job. And that style of acting is important for a disaster movie format because there's lots of 
running around and reacting. Mm. So you, and there were lots of other people in that story who were bringing the histrionics. You yeah. didn't need it from her. No. Yeah. I thought he. I thought it did very well. The only bit I really didn't like in uh, Voyage of the Damned was the bit where David Tennant turns to camera and says, "I'm a doctor. I'm a time lord from Blanicus." California Constellation Disturbers, and I'm going to save you and every one of those people on the planet down there. Right. That um, was a bit too on the knuckle for me. Yeah. Then there's the scene with Wilf. <laughs> As we would discover, he's Wilf. Yes. Where they go down to the planet's surface. You, you see, I, I, yeah, yeah, I like that as a one-off, one-off Bernard Cribbins cameo. cameo. Mm. I think they, yeah. It was nice. I like I like Bernard Cribbins in that story. I like him in. <laughs> I like well, I'm him not in asking you whether the final story. I think I think they might have fallen in love with <clears throat> Bernard Cribbins as a person, and sort of brought him back to kind of Cribbins. Bit at the end where the ship nearly lands on Buckingham Palace and the Queen's waving her fist is a little bit silly. No, yeah, but well. he. But to my mind, it's a good in joke. I think because, that's because Russell T Davis has spent the past two or three years destroying London landmarks. Mm. So Buckingham Palace. Is the... he just about stopped short at Buckingham Palace. And also, plus he was trying to get a Prince Charles cameo, wasn't he? Or I don't a, know. an Edward. Maybe he sort of talked about getting an Edward cameo in the writer's tale. I think. Oh, does he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't remember, but yeah, that would make sense. And of course, he's already mentioned the royal family in Tooth and Claw. Mm-hmm. So there's yeah. already an in joke within the series. Yeah, but... they're werewolves. Yeah, I, <laughs> Voyage of the Damned, I've not really got a lot more to say about it. I think it does what it does really well. Yeah. And I think the biggest complaint, I, sometimes I think people complain about things and they're not really quite sure why they're complaining about what they're complaining about. Yeah. And I think if you get down to the nitty gritty of it, the complaint about Voyage of the Damned is, if you took the Doctor out of it, it wouldn't really make any difference to the story whatsoever. Hmm. So it doesn't really feel like a Doctor Who story. Yeah. But other than that, for 70 minutes of entertainment on a Christmas day, hmm. I think it entertains... I think it's a, big, it's a big idea, and it's a big concept. I think it could have it could have taken more exploration. So the max power, the, the, the main villain... Villain, yeah didn't do he was sort of lost in the idea and the christmasiness and the, See, he the disaster movie. for me though because it's like if you can have this thing what does it all boil down to and usually it boils down to there's been some kind of an accident mm. the ships run into an iceberg yeah and here what it boils down to is the same thing it boils down to in aliens of london right somebody's out to make a profit yeah and i think that kind of worked no. Actually, I really loved the guy who was playing him. George Costigan. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like him. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't have really any complaints about Voyage of the Damned. Okay. It's never going to be one of my favourite Doctor Who stories. No. But of the Christmas specials, okay. of the specials, the Russell T. Davis specials full stop, yeah. it's probably by far my favourite. Mm-hmm. Should we go on to the next Doctor yep. then, yep. which came third, which I think is surprisingly high. Although I like The Next Doctor. Yeah. Actually, The Next Doctor's probably my number two after Voyage of the Damned. Yeah. But The Next Doctor is one of those ones where I think a lot of people didn't seem to like it, so I'm surprised it's landed as highly as it has. I wonder if there's a degree of Christmas special fatigue. Uh, so after a certain certain mm. number of Christmas specials, you start to take them for granted. And I think we're possibly at that stage now 
whereas I'm kind of I'm kind of not thinking of the Doctor Who Christmas special as as I'm just expecting it to happen and I'm I'm sort of not anticipating it I'm just waiting for it's it it's just going to happen yeah um but then the... at that stage the next doctor maybe that fell into the to that but it did have I mean, it had a certain number of hooks that excited me. I really like the idea of... Well, let's, or do you want to read the comments? Yeah, let's go through okay. the comments, because they'll probably bring those up, and then we can talk about yeah. them. Chris Hodgen says, David Morrissey was excellent, but the cyber story was weak. Miles Northcott says, another example of uh, of how the Cybermen are not being used too well since the series came back. David Kitchen says, would have been in the top two were it not for the ridiculous ending. And I'm assuming he's talking about cyber the Cyber King. King. Yeah. Christopher Bryant says, The good stuff involves Jackson Lake, and most of that is really good. But this may be the Cybermen's least effective modern-day appearance, with the giant's transformer at the end beaten only for stupidity by the return of the Taran Wood Beast. Okay. <clears throat> Tim Gambrell says, Cyber King is an interesting extension of Cybertech in a steampunk age, down the mechanised horror route rather than the traditional body horror route. Mm. Who said that? Tim Gambrell. Oh, I don't you know. Read, uh, yeah, well, I'll change my mind then. Okay. <laughs> John Hull says, The minor change I would make is to make David Morris's character more of a hero at the end. I love the dog Cybermen, he says. Oh, really? Okay. That's an issue with it. Before we get into the other issues, David Morris's character, well, the the big issue is Russell T. Davis was selling this off the back of is David Morrissey really going to be the next Doctor? Yes, yeah. And then doesn't know what to do with it and mm-hmm. finishes that story 20 minutes in. Yes, yeah. That's a really big issue. So actually it contributes more to um, to the previous, so the, the false regeneration. There's, I can't remember what the story is called. Journey's End. end. Journey's End. And, yeah. So there was that false regeneration and you knew that David Morrissey was playing a part in this Christmas special so you thought at that moment I'm that he sure might have pulled a fast one yeah but the, the, the false regeneration was in like June yes. so I'm not even sure David Morrissey was announced right okay. so they, they fudged this maybe, completely unless they announced maybe they announced the, the story title or maybe no, I, I thought at the did. time that that's what they should do yeah is probably. do a big double bluff and make and make Journey's End the centre of it, but then that would make the Christmas special a kind of an adjunct to it. It's a sort of a... Which it kind of is. Yeah, yeah. It's like... the, the And this is why it doesn't work, hmm. is because he's done that false regeneration yeah. in the very story before, Yeah, that he's trying to pull the same trick again in the very next episode, and people are saying, well, hang on, yeah. you've just pulled that trick on us. I mean, I defend it, in a way, by... By saying that the idea that David Morrissey could be playing the Doctor is the thing that draws you into the story. Oh, it is. But actually, the more interesting thing is what happens after that, yes. which is about David Morrissey's trauma after yes. losing his child and the way that that's, that's recovered. And that's actually the more interesting... It thing. is. I was quite happy when David Morrissey stopped pretending to be this kind of, this kind of cod Doctor. And, and we found out more about him. Lake. Yeah. But, and... And actually, it is John Hull who brings it up that that story really needed to end with David Morris's character doing something heroic at the end rather than just watching the Doctor doing all heroic things. Yeah, yeah. And, and somehow, Russ T. Davis has really missed a character beat there. Mm, yeah. But, but the, the other things about the next Doctor 
The Cyber Shades. Yes. Good idea, badly executed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or poorly yeah. executed. They were just... Uh, you remember just them men just in being men suits. Yeah, really. yeah. It was very weird. It's yeah. very, very strange that they saw When you saw the masks... Yes. Before you saw them move and before you saw what they were, when yeah. you just saw the masks, Yeah. the masks looked really good and it looked yeah. like it was going to be something really interesting. Yes. But no. Yeah, yeah. But then I, I wonder how... So the, the idea is they are animals that have been cybernized. Presumably. And how would you actually do that other than men in suits? I mean, you could slap... You could do the... um. Well, it's another case of an you idea could, that... You could do the invasion of the body snatchers thing and put a man's mask onto a dog's face. And in fact, they did that in uh, Charlie Higson's recent Jekyll and Hyde did um, they? series. They had a monster which was a dog with a man's face, which was t- absolutely terrifying. From so the invasion of the body snatchers. Yeah, yeah. That, it was ripped off from that. They could have done that. It would have cost a bomb. Yeah. Because it would have been CGI, so presumably they wouldn't have a... They couldn't have avoided yeah, yeah. it. So men in suits it is. Um, I, I liked... I liked... So the Cybermen were criticised in this, but I quite liked that kind of... For me, this is another one of Russell T. Davis's Christmas stories that kind of that kind of proved me wrong about his urban commercialism thing, because now he's going to Kensium. And so the children in the workhouse... In the workhouse and the Cybermen sort of add to that. So it's a kind of a cyber mm. steampunk Dickens story. And actually... And that it feels is, Christmassy to me, that was. Yeah, it's the only one of Russell T. Davis's Christmas specials that actually tells a Christmas story. Yeah. And so in that respect, it's probably the best one of these. Yeah, it's the most special Christmas special, I think. And the other thing is the Cybermen... And I've written about this recently. Uh, but to go into what people are saying, Christopher Bryant says, Cybermen's least effective modern day appearance. Chris Hodgen says, Cyber Story Week. Miles Northcott says, Cybermen not being used well since the series came back. Mm. This is a story in which you get to see a human being actually go through an emotional journey Mm. as they become a Cyberman. Yeah. And, okay, so Miss Hartigan becomes this giant Cyber King. And, oh, my God, if you can't do something daft like that in Doctor Who, when can you do something daft like that? I have no issues with the Cyber King. Yeah. But uh, this is my problem with the Tenth Planet, is that... In the tenth planet, the Cybermen arrive fully formed yeah. and tell you what's happened to mm. get them there. Yeah. We've replaced all our body parts and got rid of our emotions. Yeah. But you don't see it happen. Mm-hmm. And then in the moon base, they're just robots invading the yeah. moon. And then in Tomb of the Cybermen, they're just robots with some weird plan. Yeah. And ever since then, they've only ever been just robots. And occasionally in something like Attack of the Cybermen, you get them trying to convert Lytton. Yes. But that's got nothing to do yeah. with the emotional journey and everything to do with the physicality of body. So horror. actually, actually, the next, the Cybermen in the next story, the whole of the, all the characters in the next story have something to do with an emotional journey, which is what you're saying. It's about, and so the next Doctor, whether metaphorical or, or otherwise, is the first Cyberman story to actually address what it means well, kind to of, become a well, Cyberman. Well, kind of, except it's also picking that up from 
Mark Platt's big finish. But I'm talking about on television. Yeah, but if you look at and I I can't remember what it's called. Spare parts. Spare parts. Yes, Platt's spare parts. A lot of these elements. That's it's lifted a lot of these elements from that. Oh yeah, which obviously they had access to because that's what they based. the 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 rise of the Sidemen, yeah. But you've got to ask the question then: Why does it take a big Finnish audio to actually say what does it mean to actually become a Cyberman? Yeah. And when the series in forty years yeah. has never bothered addressing it, because the Cybermen were never treated very well in the series. No, they, exactly. They were very, they and were, when it was never, they were never dug down into. No, and, and the, the, the joy about big Finish is it gives you the opportunity to look more closely. Which is what Russell T. Davis's series was supposed to be doing when it came back. It was supposed to be. And it did. It looked at the emotional journeys of the characters. Mm. But then along comes a story like Rise of the Cybermen, which pays lip service to the emotional journeys of the characters. You see a Cyberman that you find out is somebody who was converted on their wedding day. But you don't see that emotional journey. Like in The Tenth Planet, again, you're being told about something after the fact. Yeah. The the next Doctor is the first time you ever actually see what it means to a person to become a Cyberman. Yeah, yeah. So, for me, all these comments about how it's not a good Cyberman story are missing the point. It's the very best Cyberman story to this point in the series. Mm-hmm. I think it's head and shoulders above the Tenth Planet and the Moon Base and all these other things, Earthshock. I certainly think the story around it is the best frame for a Cyberman story because it has the the elements that work, that expand the Cyberman mm. idea. I think there are moments, so the 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 head of Torchwood who gets Cybernized, so there are moments earlier in the series where the idea of the horror of Cybernization is actually and but that's again that's a spare that's a direct lift from spare parts and again you can see the memories superficial yeah whereas here yeah yeah this is actually a story all about it yeah where you're concentrating on that yeah and and going back to the jackson lake story this is what i was about about that's going back to what i said about planet of the dead where you've got four ideas that don't go here with one another here you've got two main characters whose stories absolutely mirror one another yeah Miss Hartigan, mm. something bad has happened to her, and her pathway out of that is to become a Cyberman, and you see the emotional journey she takes in making that decision. Yeah. Jackson Lake, something bad has happened to him. Mm. You don't see his emotional journey into making that decision, because yeah. for him it's the other way around. Yeah. You have to watch his emotional journey out. So you've got two stories happening yeah. absolutely in parallel with one another. It coheres well oddly what you've also got is there's there's a lot in the series about how the doctor is very similar to the daleks so you always have this parallel of the doctor and the daleks the doctor's just as bad as the daleks and it's the doctor and the daleks Mm. but here you've got the doctor and the cybermen parallel because jackson lake has become the doctor in order to get rid of his emotions basically to forget his past yes yeah so the act of becoming a doctor is is becoming a cyberman like becoming a cyberman and the doctor is a psychopath, <coughs> essentially. Yeah. Is what and saying. so he's journeying out of that. Yeah. While she's journeying into it. Yeah. And yeah. you see, and the, and like I say, at the end of it, it's the doctor who goes up in the balloon and solves it. It needed to be Jackson Lake. Yeah. Because otherwise those two parallel journeys don't end together. Yeah. And so yeah. Ross T. Davis fudges the ending. Yeah. But other than that. I guess narratively speaking, if it's Jackson Lake going up in the balloon, Jackson Lake should die. 
as well because that's one of those endings where mm. Jackson like punches the doctor in order to to go up into the balloon on her death wish <coughs> and, and sacrifices maybe, himself maybe on down a, a Christmas Jackson like sacrificing himself was possibly one dark step too far yeah so but was the, is Doctor Who you know Jackson Lake would have sacrificed himself by flying the balloon into the yeah. Cyber King and bringing it down. And then two minutes later, they'd have fished the basket out of the water. And what do you know? He's okay. Okay. Well, it's possible. You know, it could have yeah. worked. It's, that's how it should have been. Yes. Yeah. Really. But as it is, what we get is a slightly flawed at the end. But other than that, I think almost perfect Christmas special. Mm-hmm. And the only reason I prefer Voyage of the Damned is because I think it entertains more and it doesn't have that flaw at the end. Right. Christmas Invasion. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay, here are the comments. David Kitchen. Oh, I'll save this one for last, actually. Dylan Reese says, This is where New Who finally arrived, offering up the definitive Doctor for an entirely new generation. And John Hull says, Hanging on your anticipation of the introduction, and it builds well. Obviously, to that introduction of David Tennant, two-thirds yeah. of the way through. David Kitchen says, a genuine Christmas special. The only naff part is the awful and inaccurate Belga- Belgrano allusion and the takedown of the Prime Minister at the end. Mm-hmm. Right, coming back to that point, David Kitchen thinks this is a genuine Christmas special, but I don't agree with that at all. It's just a story that has Christmas trees in it. Yeah. And where we've talked about journeys, there's no journey here. Mm. No... Emotional journey. Oh, well, yes. You've got the journey the, of the Doctor out of the bed and into the limelight, but that's not really the same thing. Or the the, the journey of the Doctor going back into being the Doctor. That's the, uh, that's, yeah, the that's, big, really... that's the big moment of the... But yes, but it's not a journey because yeah. he doesn't take any steps. He's in the bed, then he wakes up and he's the Doctor. Yes. He doesn't actually go through a journey. Okay. I think that's the big issue with the Christmas invasion. You've also got you've also got the progression of Rose learning to trust the Doctor again. Well, which, you do, but which I mean, does work. I mean, that's so. Most of the emotional beats in the story are is is us following Rose as as I, the original as the first. Series but again, was. I don't think she actually does that. She flounders around for forty minutes while he's not there, and then he turns up and saves the day. I don't think she really does get a journey in that. Um, she she deals with so I, I it helps that I've seen this today so um, okay. so this is the one the one story that's fairly fresh in my head so she does go from from kind of trying to rescue the doctor to mourning his loss so there's a big scene with Jackie where yeah, she yeah. breaks down then she goes to try to replace him which is where she sort of gets him onto the TARDIS and then confronts Sycorax so there is that kind of it's basically Rose's journey from, from Eccleston's knowing being with Eccleston's doctor through losing Eccleston's doctor to trying to replace Eccleston's doctor, and then she gets she gets tenanted. Mm, but I don't think it's really. Well, it's not. I'm not, saying, I'm, not saying it's a, I'm not saying it's a fantastic journey. But no, for for, for me, this feels spe- this works as a special because it was the first special. Mm. So it's it works as a Christmas special because it's also the first. Well, on that point, the first Christmas special. I think it's it's I think, been diminished by what's happened after it. Well, yeah, on that point, I think that's the reason it's been voted so high. Yeah, fond memories. Yes, yeah, rather yeah, than yeah. 
the actual value of the episode yeah. itself. I think it's also the reason why an, an unearthly child gets voted really high in in polls. Not necessarily. It <laughs> well, it, it gets voted higher than perhaps you know it does. <laughs> I like the other three parts of that story. Well, I'm why not? I'm thinking of the first episode. I mean, I mean, it sets up a hell of a lot, but it's also it's also important because it's the first Mm, one. It's important because it sets these things up, and we recognise its importance. But you know, it's not it's not the greatest half hour of television drama. In terms of the story, (laughs) the Christmas invasion does the same thing that I was going to complain about in The Runaway Bride and Mm. didn't quite get to. It spends 40 minutes running around, showing us lots of things, and kind of not really going anywhere, but getting there. Do you know what I mean? And then David Tennant wakes up, Mm. and then you spend 15 minutes rooted to the spot while David Tennant does a lot of spouting off. Yeah. And that's what happens in The Runaway Bride. Mm -hmm. You spend 40 minutes running around, not really getting anywhere, but getting there. Yeah. And then you get a 15-minute scene where David Tennant and Sarah Parrish, as the giant spider, spout Mm -hmm. off against one another. Yes. And then it's finished. And then you get five minutes at the end where it does something completely different. So maybe maybe this is the past. Maybe there's a trajectory of how Russell T. Davis approaches his Christmas episodes. Because really, the first two... Both do exactly the same thing. Exactly the same thing. And you get the feeling he's writing aimed at an audience that doesn't really know the series and won't be really paying attention. They'll be sort of sat with family kind of talking and shouting. So you get these flashes of images Mm, and these sort of individual scenes like the TARDIS flying down the, the motorway. Which I like, which I think is is a really exciting image. Um, but after this one, maybe with the next Doctor and with the Voyage of the Damned, maybe he starts actually quite, trying to else, create yeah. stories that people will follow. Yeah, because Christmas Invasion really there's a lot there's a lot of nice stuff mm. as he's building up yeah. towards yeah. David Tennant's appearance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's. Not really all that substantial, no. is it? You watched it today. I, it's, it's like World minutes. War Three. It's it's not that much more special than World War Three, except it doesn't have the destruction of Big Ben as a sort of a, mm. a centerpiece. Well, Christmas Invasion's got the shard, of course, hasn't it? Uh, Do they uh, shatter the shard? No, the um, the gherkin. The gherkin. That's yeah, what I meant. yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, yeah, it's good. Mm. Yeah, I, wa- I watched it. I sat through it. And of course, it's got lots of people standing on rooftops. That's, which quite, in, uh, that's quite a nice image. It, but but again, it's difficult to watch without without torchwood coming into your head, and without thinking, "Wow, this was ages ago. This was eleven mm. years ago." And how has it how has it changed since? And actually, then? mirroring with the end of time, people standing on the tops of the buildings about to throw themselves off is a bit like. A planet entirely made of masters. Great idea. Mm. Great visual. Doesn't go anywhere. David Tennant turns up and says, oh, well, it wouldn't have jumped off anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, so what was that for, really? Apart yeah. from just to give us an image. Yes. Yeah. It's Rusty Davis allowing the image to drive the story. Mm-hmm. Which works. Yeah, yeah, in yeah. In yeah. terms works. of what you've just said about yeah. a Christmas special, about yes, people yeah. only yeah. half watching it. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think it's done intentionally, I think. It's, mm. And also, particularly with this one, it's aimed to give David Tennant a, a free platform to 
as you put it, spout off, but also to sort of try on the skin of the Doctor and try on a few a few Doctorish things. So he's playing a character that's trying to find out who he is. But I think what? it's David Tennant trying to work his way into playing the Doctor, which I think lots of Doctor's introductions are that. It's an opportunity for the actor to try different yeah, things. Yeah, so yeah, power, yeah. We were talking about Power of the Daleks. That's exactly what happens with Power of the Daleks. Patrick Alton doesn't know how to play the Doctor to start with, but that's fine because David Whittaker's written a story where he doesn't have to know what he's doing. And the same with Castrovalva, the same with Robot, the same God help us with Time and the Rani. Just on one tiny little thing, he ends the episode by saying, no second chances, that's the yes. kind of man I am. And then in the very next story, give somebody a second chance. But even more of an issue for me is, he says, no second chances, that's the kind of man I am, just after he's given the Sycorax King a second chance. Mm. It's yeah. like, I've defeated you, I'm walking away, you walk away now, there's your second chance. Yeah. And then he turns around and gets rid of him. So what's this? That's a line of dialogue that makes absolutely no sense. Mm. And it's just there for effect. Yeah. Well, I kind of... So... This stands or falls on David Tennant in those 15 minutes where he's facing mm-hmm. off against the Sycorax King. Mm-hmm. And I've got to say, I found him a bit irritating. Love the line where he says, you know, where he walks out of the TARDIS and says, I'm here. Yes, yeah. Love that. Yeah. And then I just found the next 15 minutes a bit irritating. Mm. I found it less irritating watching it today than I did watching it back then. Oddly, <laughs> really? oddly. Right. Yeah. Back then, I was a bit... Because we'd been watching Eccleston for the past year... And Eccleston's performance is a lot more understated. Or it's at mm. its best when it's understated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And here, you like get a face full of tenant just coming at you. But now, I think watching it now, I can see where his character goes. And I like Tennant's Doctor. I like the way he, he approached playing the Doctor. And I think he, he genuinely had moments of genius mm. playing the Doctor. And now I can see those. So I can see where those come from in this story. So mm. I'm more forgiving on a rewatch than I was at the time. Oh, well, it continued being a bit irritating for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Should we go to... Is there anything else on the Christmas Invasion? No, no. Right, let's go to number one then, yeah. which obviously is... And this is kind of ironic that this... Uh, this go over the Russell T. Davis specials mm. has started and finished with the two stories that aren't the Christmas ones. Yes. Although the Waters and Mars was going to be a Christmas special. Yeah. And the scene at the end where he comes down to the planet was going to be set at Christmas, presumably. Mm-hmm. Just to make it more cheerful. Mm. <laughs> Waters and Mars. Let's do the comments. Cause okay. Waters and Mars. Well, people who've been listening to this podcast for the last five years know exactly what I think of Waters and Mars because okay. we're doing the specials. I'm going to be yeah. saying it all again. But okay. let's go. Miles Northcott says, logic lets it down a bit. And he says something that I've said many times. Why didn't the Doctor just take the su- to survivors to some other place or time so it would have seemed like they perished on Mars? Mm. David Kitchen says, A deeply flawed ending that fails to pay off and a story that doesn't stand up to repeated viewing, but it was very exciting when first seen as a special. Dylan Reese says the Doctor basically has a temper tantrum and everything sorts itself out. These people all liked it, by the way. I'm picking these comments (laughs) out because they agree with what I think. Right, okay. Good. I'm sure they'll be happy with that. Yeah. (laughs) But now I get into the comments. Christopher Bryant says, One of the scariest stories with very effective water zombies and good Mm. performances, the Time Lord Victorious, was always going to divide people. 
Gerard Gray says, one of my favourite David Tennant episodes, despite the Time Lord Victorious bit at the end. I think this could have been a better regeneration story for Tennant than the end of time. Okay. And John Hole says, some of the best scares in the series. Okay, so let's start with the good stuff. The yeah. scary stuff. Yeah. That was very effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the water zombies were really on the edge of being acceptable. Yeah. For, for kids. Especially as this episode was shown early. It was mm. shown at like between six and seven. <laughs> well, previously, Doctor had been between seven and eight. Mm. And all of a sudden, they'd come up with the scariest episode of all. Yeah. And they decided to show it an mm. hour earlier. Yeah. Presumably, because they showed it at the Strictly Come Dancing end of the year. Yeah. Which they'd not, which they'd not done before. So this yes. was the first time that happened. Yeah. So, yeah, I loved... I love the tone. Actually, the tone. So the tone of this story is really good. And the design and the direction of this story, I think, is really good. And I think I think the performances of the story, they're really good. I love Lindsay Duncan. Mm-hmm. And I love David Tennant in this. And I actually... Well, yeah. Oh, I agree, actually. I think David Tennant... I think everybody and everything in it is mm. perfect for the first half an hour. I yeah. adore the first half an hour. Yeah. I think the entire thing goes completely to pot after that. Um, but even things like that silly robot... Yeah. It's, no, I kind of like yeah, it. Yeah, well... It's all right. We've all seen Silent Running. Yeah. You know, a silly robot. What's mm-hmm. the problem? Um... And the way the story about the water unfolds, the bit where they, the conversation where they mention the ice warriors, for example, mm. where they're just having that quiet moment where mm. they're talking about what it could possibly be behind, what's going wrong. Yeah. That was a nice moment because, you know, if you, if you watch a film like Alien, mm. Alien takes its time. Yeah. But it takes its time in the first hour. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't reveal anything in the first hour that's relevant to what happens in the second hour in terms of it by way of explaining it. Yeah. It doesn't bother explaining it. And then in the second hour, all hell breaks loose Mm. and they don't explain it there either. Yeah. Nowhere in Alien does anybody stop and say what's going on. Mm Mm-hmm. But in the waters of Mars, you do have a scene where they stop and they say, what's going on, effectively. Yeah. And I really liked that because that was kind of an unexpected beat in the story. Mm. And what it did was it allowed the characters to unfold. Mm. And I think cause Phil Ford obviously wrote, like, I don't know how exactly it split, but I think basically what you've got here is Phil Ford for 40 minutes and Russell D. Davis for 20. Right. I think that's essentially it. Mm. And I th- that first 40 minutes, I think Phil Ford does a really good job with the characters. Mm. And the characters are as important as the story, but the story's really effective. So yeah. everything's really effective. Yeah. But then we get to the last 20 minutes. What do you feel about the last 20 minutes? I like, minutes? so, uh, I'm a bit un- I'm uncomfortable about the, the suicide. Well, let's I put that, that to one side and come back far. to that. I liked the Time Lord Victoria stuff. I liked the way that Tennant... Tent expressed it and carried it across. I like the idea that I like the idea that it's a story. It felt like it was it was a story that was feeding into his his final story. So this is what kind of what I wanted more in Planet of of the Dead. I wanted this kind of this. I wanted David Tennant's end to be to be 
a character based end. But then there's an issue in that in this you've got this Time Lord Victorious thing, mm-hmm. and then at the start, at the end of time, he goes to the planet of the Ud and it yeah. resets. And, and I've always thought is. that's a problem with the end of time, not with Waters of Mars. Yeah, I, th- I thought I thought Waters of Mars took him to a place where I was really interested to see what they were going to do next with, well, I, with that character. Yeah, but I think. Uh, yes, like like um, the end of Earthshock is, is really to... good, but then the problem with Earthshock isn't the end of Earthshock; it's the time, start flight. Of time flight. But their issue here is that Russell T Davis writes the end of time. Yeah. So my problem with it, apart from the fact that I just don't like that Time Lord Victorious thing at all, anyway. Right. But my problem with it is, is that Russell T Davis writes this Time Lord Victorious thing yeah. without any conviction. Right. Because he's not going to develop it and take it on somewhere. If he had a plan in his mind to do something with it, yeah. this comes down to, if you know what the end of your story is, mm. it will make the start of your story stronger mm. because you're building the bricks to get to the end of the story, right? But if the end of your story and the start of your story have got nothing to do with one another... Mm. To me, that undermines the foundations of the start of your story. And so to me, the Time Lord Victorious thing feels like something with no conviction in it because Russell T. Davis doesn't have a plan of where he's going to take it. So it feels like he's just thrown it in there for no very good reason. And it's, it's it's something he's doing to the Doctor without a purpose. I don't know. I still think you can just take water. If you take Waters of Mars as a standalone story and take the end of time, not the end of time, take the next episode out of the equation. The end of time. The end of time out of mm. the equation. I think you can get, oh, I certainly can get beyond the idea that Russell T. Davis doesn't really know where he's going because actually I think that most Doctor Who showrunners don't really know exactly where they're going. They kind of improvise and they take... They, but this they is the very next episode. Yeah. What I mean is, when I watch The Waters of Mars and I watch that Time Lord Victoria stuff, I just don't. I just don't see it adding up to anything. Right. I just it just feels to me like he's thrown it in there because he wanted to make the end of that story more dramatic. Yeah. And to me, that undermines the end of that story because mm. the end of that story as Phil Ford wrote it was completely different right. none of that stuff happened mm. and Russell T Davis introduced all that stuff mm. to make it more dramatic Right. and to me that undermines the drama because the end of that story doesn't come out of the beginning of that story mm. and they throw in a really clunky line at the start I mean I said I loved the first 40 minutes and thought it was almost perfect but for one really clunky line where David Tennant looks about the Bowie base and says, Oh, this is a fixed point in time. Mm. And you're thinking, When was the last time the doctor walked into a room and told the six people who were assembled there, You guys are a fixed point in time? Mm. That just felt like a really dreadful line of dialogue. And to me, the last 20 minutes of that episode just feels mm. like that clunkiness stretched over 20 so, minutes. So the whole fixed point in time idea is the suggestion, the suggestion isn't that a fixed point in time is a very common thing. So we know that Pompeii is a fixed point in time. So he makes a big deal of that. And we know that the Mars base is a fixed mm. point in time. So maybe that's what that 
that means. I mean, it's building towards Time Lord Victorious bit as well. But if he goes into a situation that is a fixed point in time, maybe it's rare enough for him to actually say that it is. So when we don't see him do it in other stories, it's because they're not fixed points in time. And he yeah, can but... he can get involved and dabble. Here, he's actually saying, I really shouldn't be here. I really need to leave because this is a major pivot point in humanity's development. Well, yeah, that's how it's played. Yeah. But and to so he me... needed to say that just to sort of make Yeah, but to me, I don't like the idea. Okay. I think... And I think the way it's um, portrayed is clunky. Mm. Yeah. Probably because I don't like the idea. Okay. But I, I, just... quite, I quite like the idea. I like the idea of the... That there, because it, because it, it does, it does expand it doesn't work. that setting. It doesn't work because mm. what he's saying is this is a fixed point in time. Yeah. Now, for something to be fixed, that means that there must be something fixing it, right? Right. Otherwise, because that's what the word well, fixed means. Yes, it I, means it has been. I interpreted fixed. it as being there are certain. There are certain events in the history of the universe that have been deemed, say, by the Time Lords to be pivotal events that are that should be fixed. But that's not what it's played at, is it? Well, he, he, they say that it should be a fixed point. Well, that's it not what they fixed. said in the fires of Pompeii. Well, then he changed, but then he changes the fixed point in time because he rescues them. Well, no, so, he doesn't. So it's, the... it's not very well fixed. Well, no, he does actually say he does actually change that. Well, no, it doesn't necessarily because we don't know whether those people would have survived anyway. The point in the point yes. in Pompeii is that the volcano erupts. Mm. That's the fixed point. The eruption of the volcano, not the people who die, because you've got X thousand people there, and yeah. who knows whether those four people would have been ones who died or not. The but fixed point is the eruption of the yeah. volcano, yes. and the point of that fixed point is that volcano is going to erupt yeah. one way or another. But the, then you get to Bowie base, and all of a sudden it's not, this is fixed and it will happen one way or another, yeah. but all of a sudden it's fluid, mm. and he can change it. Mm. So if he can change it, it's not fixed. Mm. So whatever it is that is apparently fixing it, isn't actually fixing it. Yeah. So the idea is, the idea is too loose. I mean, the the, uh, the impression I got was, it's this it's almost a combination of the absence of the Time Lords. No, which we, which we didn't, which we didn't know was existed, and he discovers that fixed points in time are still fixed because, because death still happened at the end, so the characters still died just in different circumstances. So it's almost like these, well, no, char- they these didn't, characters did they? are mortal. Only one of them did. Maybe, well, yeah. Well, we don't know which bits of the base are fixed in that case. Maybe well, the, the... De- the death of the captain, the death of the base commander, might be the fixed point in time. But he muffs that up as well, doesn't he? Yeah. Well, this, the, is, yeah. this is this is what undermines the end of this story, and we'll talk about the suicide. When you say he, do you mean Russell T. Davis muffs it up, or David, or the no, tenth Russell doctor. T. Davis? You see, I think the tenth Doctor muffs it up rather than Russell T. Davis. Well, maybe he does, but Russell Which T. Davis. point? But but in Russell T. Davis's head, mm. that suicide fixes it. Well. I think in Russell T. Davis's head, this, uh, the, which is a bad thing, the suicide isn't actually the important thing. It's the fact that, that she dies. the doctors... No, it's the fact that the doctors made a mistake. 
So the focus, oh, yeah, yeah, the focus yeah. is on the Doctor's error, not on death of the character. But and that's, that's what the, I mean. And that's, for me, that's the problem with the, and the scene. And he's concentrating so much on that, he's yeah. lost sight of the yeah. fact that this woman's granddaughter isn't going to be inspired by her death on Mars. Yeah, I... But, but he but, still thinks the death fixes that plot but point. But for me, the problem with the story isn't with with the lack of logic, because it's his Doctor Who. Yeah, no, problem, but I'm talking about the logic the, now. The problem is with the focus of the scene. Yeah, but okay, that's well, a separate but yeah, point. So the, but I'm the logic, the logic the, but the logic doesn't hold up. Yeah, no, it doesn't. But it's... then that's this is Doctor Who. It's yeah, it's, but it's that is rammed full of stories where oh no, but that is very fundamental to the story, right? So in order for the waters of Mars to work, that logic has to add up. It's it's fundamental to what we know about the future after the story. The story itself is entirely consistent. Yes, because but, we have a character who, who but lives. You've just talked a lot dies. about what a fixed point is. Yes, and so it's not just fundamental to the future as we know it after that story. It's fundamental to the entire idea that underpins this story about the fixed point. Right. If if Russell T Davis is going to make this story about a fixed point, yes. And he thinks that this suicide at the end is fixing that fixed point. But, and he's getting that so badly wrong. He's really misunderstood what he's done to this story. Phil Ford's story is just about six people on a base right. who come under peril from these water monsters. And at the yes. end, the Doctor saves them. Mm-hmm. Russell T. Davis has changed this into a story about something else. And this is the issue. Phil Ford's story is one thing. And Russell T. Davis has come along and turned it into something else. Mm. But but Phil Ford's story is still there. Yeah. And Phil Ford's story doesn't withstand that change. So at the end of The Waters of Mars, it's not just the little logic thing that's gone on at the end. Mm. The whole thing back through to the start of the story from when he first starts talking about a fixed point mm. is undermined and undermines the rest of the story. So that when you get to the end of the episode, none of it adds up to any kind of sense. Right. That's what I'm saying. And yes, the logic thing is just a little bit of that. But what I'm saying is that logic thing is the thinking that makes the rest of the episode not add up either. Hmm. I just think that last 20 minutes of The Waters of Mars really lets it down shockingly badly. Right. All I can say is watching it the first time. Oh, it's very entertaining. I I was still excited by the time of Victorious. I was, and actually, I didn't. I didn't have a problem with the suicide either the first time. It was only after I thought about oh, really? it for a while yeah. afterwards. Oh yeah, I mean, well, let's dark. say what the issue it's, with the suicide it's dark, is. But you know, the issue with the suicide, of course, is that this is a show that is maybe primarily, but even if not primarily, largely watched by children mm. and young teenagers and young adults. And what you're saying at the end of this story is sometimes. Suicide solves things. Mm. What you're basically doing is saying to a bunch of young teenagers, pubescents, you know, if you feel that everything's got so bad that the people around you's lives will be better without you in it, then you just go ahead and kill yourself because you're probably right. Yeah. And that is a really bad thing to say on television. Mm. And the only way he got away with it was because Stolen Earth and Journey's End had been at number one six months earlier and the BBC let him get away with murder, quite Mm. frankly. Mm. I don't think if Series 1 had ended with that, I don't think the BBC would have let him do it in a million years. Right. But he'd had a runaway success by this point and they just let him do it, didn't they? Okay. Yeah. 
You're just agreeing, yeah. No, no, I, I agree. I didn't, in retrospect. No, I said you're just agreeing. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, I'm agreeing. Um, at the time watching it, I didn't have a problem with it. Um, I didn't, I didn't feel that kind of sense of outrage at what he'd just shown on television. Um, but then I was, I was sort of older than the average viewer. And at that, and watching it, watching these stories, I'm watching them as stories made for me, not for children. It's only in retrospect, I think. Well, does this story work for a, for a younger viewer? Is it, you know, good? I mean, the zombie monsters were probably too much, I think, for for younger kids. But you know, I was watching Nightmare on Elm Street when I was about twelve, so mm. I'm, I have. Well, it's really the early teens. I make a bad parent. Waters and Mars is letting down. Yeah, the ones that are going through pubescence and are having these because mm. we know that teen suicide is a thing. Yeah. And this episode just seems to be saying, well, you know, teen suicide's okay sometimes. But oddly, actually, that seems to be the message. Actually, hearing from uh, kids who were young at the time and who grew up with this new version of Doctor Who, I would imagine, I would have half expected the zombie water monsters to feature large in their personal nightmares. But actually, it's still gas mask children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still the weeping angels, but. The, the zombie water monsters. They've not... actually become a bit of a forgotten episode yeah, for yeah. the sort of hardcore fans, really, hasn't yes, it? Yes, which is strange, I think, because they are, they are Funnily the enough, scariest monsters, or the, well, the most viscerally scary monsters. In some ways, it's the Russell T. Davis story that most reminds old school fans of classic Doctor Who, isn't mm. it? Because it's yeah. classic base under siege, really. Yeah. But yeah, I'm not surprised it's a number one because. It's fans voting for it. Yeah. yeah. So, but for me, I think in some ways, like I say, that first 40 minutes, if they'd carried on like that, this would have been for me above Voyage of the Damned and the Next Doctor. Right. For the last 20 minutes, I would put this below Planet of the Dead and the End of Time. Okay. Whereas for you, I guess it's the opposite. Um, I would still put it, I would still put it pretty high because I think, I think the excitement of, of the zombie monsters, the zombie water monsters, and the, the fact that I quite like the time of Victorious, and that I still I can see potential in that idea, and I think that's for me that's demoting the end of time rather than failing me to or mm. making me avoid promoting Waters of Mars. I think this is a sort of a good-looking, well-performed story, and for sure. special that. It doesn't feel special, but it didn't need to because it was shown at Halloween rather than Christmas. Well, it wasn't actually. It was shown two weeks after Halloween. Was it shown two weeks after Halloween? I thought it was pretty much. No, it was like November. If I remember rightly, actually, it was the 11th of November. Okay. I believe. But yeah, it was like at least a week after Halloween. Because everyone was expecting it to be shown on Halloween. Right. And then Halloween came and went. Right. And it didn't show up for another couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah, that was. Really odd bit of timing. Because, mm. yeah, everyone was expecting it to be the Halloween special. But I've named my favourite of these seven specials. I'm going to... I've asked Simon and Lee yes. and Mark to name their favourites of these specials. Right. Because they couldn't be here, but I thought I'd at least get that off them. Yes. And Mark said his favourite of these specials was Planet of the Dead. And <laughs> Lee said his favourite of these specials was Planet of the Dead. And Simon said his favourite of these specials was Planet of the Dead. So what do you know? I could be lying. So you are lying. Yes, I'm lying. Okay, okay. My estimation <laughs> is my 
fellow blue boxes and yeah. sort of slipped them. But go on, name your favourite of these seven. Um, I'm going to hold up the piece of paper so I can remind myself of them. Um, I, th- I think, having talked about it, I think Waters of Mars is my favourite. Yeah, favorite. I think it's... <laughs> but from what you've been saying, it sounded like it would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. Although... I mean, I'm not a fan of the, the Christmas, but I'm not a fan of the Christmas specials. I think that the Christmas specials, I much prefer, I'm much more of a fan of the, the standard season episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Christmas specials are always a bit sort of, a bit kind of an endurance for me because I know I should like them. But Waters of Mars was, was, you know, it was, it, it, it didn't have to be special. So. So it was Planet of the Dead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Just before we go, then, the return of Doctor Mysterio. I don't can't. I'm not sure we've talked about this at all on this podcast, and because it's just one episode, and we've not had a series this year. Because mm. last year and the year before, Simon and I did a Christmas special preview episode, right? Where we talked for an hour about the upcoming Christmas special. Okay, basically, yes. yeah. we're not be doing that this year. No, but. Um, from what little we know about it, you're looking forward to it. Yeah, I always, I, always look, I always look forward to to it. Um, I'm more, I'm, I'm, I'm more looking forward to Sherlock than I am to Doctor Who at the moment. Okay, but uh, let's but concentrate. That, on but that Doctor might Who. that might change over the next few weeks. Um, yeah, I think so. I think I'm looking forward to Matt Lucas coming back because I like Matt Lucas and I'm interested to see what they do with him. And how they bring him back. It would be nice to see Peter Capaldi again. Um, I, I don't know enough to have a hook for it yet. I mean, the superhero movies, again, it's starting to sound like a light voyage of the damned. Um, Stephen Moffat saying Christmas is a time for watching superhero movies, which is kind of, mm. which is kind of true in a sense. I, th- I think it's. I made that sound, point in my preview. Actually, yeah, starting this to is, sound less Christmassy to me, though personally. Because this seems to be because Stephen Moffat's done all these Christmas specials, mm. and he thought his last one was going to be his last episode of Doctor Who. Yeah, and to me, it looks like series ten is going to be Stephen Moffat sort of with the shackles off a bit. Yeah, just being a bit more free with Doctor Who. Yeah. And I think this Christmas special is going to be a bit of an augury for that. Yes, that yeah. This is Stephen Moffat freeing himself of writing a, mm. for want of a, for want of better knowledge about what's coming up, yeah. freeing himself of writing a Christmas story. Yeah, I think it could go. It could go either way. So, Voyage of the Damned was quite a successful, a successful attempt to put a disaster movie on a small screen, and disaster movies shouldn't go on small screens. They should be on big screens because they're big, spectacular movies. We hey, watch how them, big is your telly? We watch them a lot on small screens, obviously with the towering phone, but they're designed for the big screen. Superhero movies, really, they're a big screen experience. But and, this is... and they're also they come with the heritage of the comic books behind them. So all of these superhero characters well, have this kind of depth of well, depth of history behind them. This is gonna be, so be the Doctor Who version of a superhero movie. Yes. And also, of course, Stephen Moffat has said his favourite superhero is Clark Kent. Mm. Quote, not Superman, Clark right. Kent, unquote. Yes. So this is gonna be <clears throat> I mean, there will be sequences where you see the superhero doing superhero y type things, no mm. doubt. 
Yeah. But Stephen Moffat's concentration is very much going to be on, presumably, the emotional life and therefore the emotional journey of yeah. the man who thinks he is or is a superhero. Yeah. I just hope that he's not pastiching something because there's. The, the, I don't think he will. There's, be. A, there's an occasional. Well, it'll be. A, it's, it's going to be. It's, be already, it's already a pastiche of a superhero movie just from the promotional material. But then, so that's. But my point is. At the moment, superhero movies have, in America, shifted. They've become a lot more, a lot more sophisticated. So what this could end up being, and I, I don't think it will be because it's Stephen Moffat, but what it could be is a pastiche of how superhero movies used to be, when actually they've become slightly more sophisticated. Well, be, I don't you're think you're getting gonna... Jessica Jones and you're getting um, Luke Cage. But I don't think this is going to be a superhero movie. Well, I'm, no. I'm That's... talking. I'm saying it's a pastiche of a superhero movie, which it is. No, I don't think already. it's going to be a pastiche of a superhero movie. I don't think it's going to be a superhero movie at all. Is well, it already is a pastiche of a superhero movie because the, I've seen the poster, and that's a pastiche of a superhero movie. No, but you're missing my point, right? That's a trapping. That's like a, what we were saying about Russell T. Davis and Christmas. Yeah. With Russell T. Davis putting Christmas things into stories that weren't about Christmas, mm. I'm saying this isn't going to be a superhero story. It's going to have superhero things in it. Yes. But it's not going to be a superhero story. Yeah. It's going so to be a story about a man. Right. So it is going to be a pastiche. Why would that make it a pastiche? Well, it's not a, a recreation of a superhero movie. It's it's like a sort of flawed recreation of a superhero movie or a. It's a a superhero movie that has Doctor Who-ish bits underneath it. And no, I don't think it it's going to be a superhero movie with Doctor have a superhero bits underneath it. it. It's going to have a, a guy in a cape in it. Yeah, So but... that's inescapable. <laughs> no, but you're missing my point. If it's got a guy in a cape in it who's pretending to be a superhero, then it's, a past... it's already a pastiche of a superhero movie. No, it doesn't. No, if it's got a guy in a cape in it, that doesn't make it a pastiche of a superhero movie. If it's got a guy in the cape playing a superhero, or pretending, even pretending to be a superhero movie, that makes it a pastiche. But no, we it might doesn't. we might have a different we might Superman, have a different impression the of what the definition guy in of, pas- cape in it. of pastiche. That's not a pastiche of a superhero. No, that's a superhero movie. movie. Well, that's what I'm saying. This isn't going to be a superhero movie because it's a Doctor Who episode. This is going to be a pastiche of a superhero movie. This is going to take elements of a superhero movie and reframe them to, is, a, different, to a different end. Is because it's already taken elements is of a superhero movie because it's got the a guy Runaway in a Bride, a pastiche of a Christmas movie. Um, no. But um, it's got Christmas trees in it and Santa's in it. Yes, but Christmas movies don't necessarily... So a Christmas movie isn't a thing. <laughs> a Christmas movie isn't a genre. Yeah, but you're missing my point. You can only have a pastiche of a genre. So Voyage of, Voyage, of is, Voyage of a Damned is a pastiche oh, of a disaster Matt, movie. stop. <laughs> you're so fixated on your point, you're missing my point. Okay. I'm not saying there won't be elements of this that aren't a pastiche of a superhero movie. Right. I think that will be just a tiny part of the plot. Right. And I think most of this won't be dealing with that. Okay. So what I'm saying is that's just going to be like the Christmas trees in a Russell T. Davis right. Christmas special. Okay. I'm saying the story of this will be about something else. Okay. And what I was saying is I'm hoping that you're right and I'm hoping that this isn't going to be what Voyage of the Damned was to the disaster movie. Because the Voyage of the Damned was a pastiche of a disaster movie. I'm hoping this isn't going to be a, 
a whole pastiche of a superhero movie because superhero movies and the superhero genre has moved on in America. Yeah. And so you'll, you'll end up with something quite dated. But then, but then, if this episode is 75% not... Well, we don't know. I mean... No, is, but I'm saying then, if yeah. this episode is 75% not superhero yes. movie yeah. and 25% superhero movie, yes. then it's not a pastiche of a superhero movie. It's something else that has a bit of pastiche of a superhero movie in it. Okay, well... I mean, I, I disagree. I think if it's got elements of pastiche in it, then it is a pastiche of a superhero movie. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because if, if it has... Well, I think we have different definitions of pastiche and different but, approaches okay, to how but narrative Life of Brian's works. got a spaceship in it, but it's not a pastiche of a sci-fi movie. No, Life of Brian's a pastiche of a sword and sandals movie. Yes. Or the biblical epic. But it's got a spaceship epic. in it, right? Yeah. But it's, so still, it's not... But so I'm saying, just because this Doctor Who special has a guy in it yeah, who's so, in a cape, doesn't yeah. mean it's a pastiche of a superhero. So you movie. look at the dominant influence of a story. But you don't know what the dominant influence is. No, exactly. Of this is. But what I'm saying is, if the dominant But you're saying already that it's a pastiche of a superhero movie, even though you don't know what the dominant element is, is uh, going to be. Well, okay, so it's, it's looking to me like it's going to be. You're saying a the advertising pastiche is the I'm, advertising of a superhero I'm, I'm going by by the advert, which shows a guy in a cape bursting through the centre of the poster with the doctor either the doctor and Matt Lucas either side. That's so suggesting the that the, that's suggesting that the, the advertising. that's suggesting that the dominant narrative of this story is going to be the superhero element, which would make this story a pastiche of a superhero movie. Yeah, but you, I, that's what's worrying me about potentially worry me about But you the can't story. say that that's what it is until you've seen it. No, we can't. Well, no. <laughs> but you just did. Because, no, I'm saying that's what I'm anticipating. That's what I'm worried about based on, based on the poster. Yeah, but... I mean, it's, in ago, a sense, in a sense, from the material, from the material we've got so far and the material we've seen so far, it is a pastiche of a superman. It's being promoted no, it as a It looks pastiche. like it's going to be. Okay. Not it well, is. There's well, a difference. Well... <laughs> Okay. I mean, we don't, neither of us know what it's going to be. No, and I'm saying I think it's going to be something else, and that's okay. where we came in. Okay. And I was going to go on and talk more about that. Okay. And now I've lost the will to live. Okay. <clears throat> I think it's going to be more like Battlefield. You, you said that before on another, was that another podcast you were talking I about? I think so, so. I'm not sure. Right. But I think it's going to have. And I think it's going to have an element where I think the Doctor's going to turn up and I don't know, I don't know anything about it, mm. but for, I think the Doctor's going to turn up and the guy who thinks he's a superhero or is a superhero or whatever mm. is going to think the Doctor is his arch nemesis. Right. And the reason he thinks the Doctor's his arch nemesis is even though he's never met the Doctor before, or even though the Doctor's never met him before, he's met the Doctor before, yeah. and something happened to mm. make him think the Doctor's going to be his arch-nemesis. Yeah. And I think later in the episode we'll get some kind of a flashback, which will be not a flashback, but a point where the story goes back in time, mm -hmm. where we'll actually get to see what we would have seen in Battlefield if we'd have had a sequence where we'd have had Sylvester McCoy becoming Merlin for all those people. Okay. So I think there's going to be a but timey-wimey element to it. Right, but you think this guy isn't going to be... 
I don't know whether he's a superhero or not, but I think most of the episode is going to be an investigation of his character and why he thinks about these things. Okay. I think the only thing, the only way they can get through this story is by having some sort of alien, alien influence on this guy, or this guy is an alien. There's an alien influence. Yeah. I don't know whether it's on him, but there's no location work in this, which is why I don't think it's going to be a superhero movie. It's entirely in studio. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I think the trailer or the trailer, the thing that we saw on uh, Children in Need Mm. is about probably as much superhero as we're going to get. I mean, there will be a couple of throwaway scenes where we see him doing superhero type things. Mm. But because it's entirely studio, Mm. you're not going to get him flying about the streets of New York or something. I'm still, yeah, I'm still worried. So the thing that still worries me that that it's even if it's okay so it might it may turn out not to be a pastiche of us but the things that his pastiching is not what superhero movies are like now it's what superhero movies were like in 1977 yeah this sort of camp camp pastiche and i think i think that's a way to make it look quite dated it's like when yeah but it's I'm... a bit like when can you remember when uh Ricky Gervais did extras mm-hmm. and he had a Doctor Who a bit where he played mm. a Doctor Who monster and actually Ricky Gervais is was taking a piss out of 1980s, of 1980s Doctor, Who. Doctor Who rather than and that actually ruined that episode of extras for me yeah, because, yeah. because I'm a Doctor Who fan but also because well, it it's kind of limited anyway. yeah it's kind of a limited thing and I think that's that's the worry I have with because well, I, li- I like the new the new superhero movies I like the direction they're going in. Well, there, but one of the two things that uh, the new superhero movies are doing, Mm. one of them is the Marvel thing, which is sending them up without sending them up, right? Yeah. And the other thing is the DC thing, which is showing the characters' emotional journeys as a more important factor than their superhero exploits. Yeah. I mean, that's actually starting to... Well, it's starting to break apart now. So... um, Marvel has actually become more about emotion, and DC has become more about. Well, I'm simplifying, cr- but you know what I'm talking about. But yeah, about. yeah, yeah. And I, and to me, that looks like, if anything, that's what Stephen Moffat will be doing. Mm. So even if he does it accidentally, mm. it looks like he's going to be paying into the things that you're looking for anyway. Yeah, possibly. Well, we still don't know much about. No, it. no. no. But it remains to be seen. But Mark Gatiss has said that, I can't remember the exact quote, but it was like, it's the most heartbreaking breaking thing that Stephen Moffat's ever written. Okay. Which is <laughs> not what you'd expect a description of a superhero movie to be, right? Right. No. So no. it's obviously going to be something else. Okay. Much like The Waters of Mars was something else. Yes. <laughs> okay, let's leave it. Okay. But on the subject of Stephen Moffat, that's what we're going to be talking about next week. Everything from last Christmas up to um, the Husbands of River Song. Cool. Taking in all the Christmas specials and the Day of the Doctor. And I suppose we'll find out whether our listeners agreed with the readers of Doctor Who magazine and voted the Day of the Doctor the best of that bunch. Which they will do. Oh, shut up. Don't spoil (laughs) the surprise. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I've not done the adding up yet. Okay. As soon as everybody put Day of the Doctor in first, I'm guessing that's probably how it'll go. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Until then, 
I was Matt. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon. Thank you.